listen, guys, this week I'm just not doing it. Week after week, you guys turn into the Run Your Mouth podcast. I give you a breakdown of just about every single interesting news story. And I tell you about products I think you're going to like. I tell you about Yo Kratom, home of the $6 kilo. I tell you about sheath underwear, the most comfortable underwear, the only underwear that will let you separate your dick from your nuts. And if you use promo code RYM, you're going to get 20% off. That's what I do. Week after week, you guys tune into the Run Your Mouth podcast. It's a recap of weekly news jokes that I think I come up with about the news, interesting takes, products that you can use with promo codes that you can get discounts, unless they're already just 60 bucks for a kilo, in which case they're all set. But I'm not doing it this week. This week, I had guests, you know, people that have uh, come on this podcast before, hit me up, tell me, I've got all the information that you need about the noon. You don't even need to do your homework. You don't need to look at any news stories whatsoever. I got a presentation for you. And so that's what we're doing this week. I, you you want to know what happened in the news other than what CPU got prepared for us, you're going to have to go look it up for yourself because I'm not doing it this week. I told you guys I'm not going to do it, and I'm not lying. I'm not going to do it. But before I get into this segment with CPU God, I do want to plug a new business that I'm opening up. I think that there's demand in the marketplace uh, for this business. I think I've got the skill set to get this thing off the ground. I think some of you guys might actually be able to utilize this service. And uh, here's my new my new business. I'm going to open up the Antying Bully by Claiming Bigotry Association of America. I didn't quite stick the landing on the title. It's going to be a very good firm. So let me tell you guys the name of my company again. It is the Anti-Bullying by Claiming Bigotry Association of America. And here's what we're going to do. Let's say you're on Twitter and you put up some uh, funny tweets or something and then some Jews come after you and they call you anti-Semitic and they're out there in full weasel Jew force. They're, they're going like, how dare you? You're an anti-Semite. How dare you say these things? And meanwhile, you're like, dude, I'm just trying to talk about against civil liberties. And they're like, no, it's what you said about me. It's not that I'm only criticizing you and I've never criticized anybody else. It's, it, it's particularly, so here's the point. You're going to hire me as your Jew and I'm going to go after the people who are claiming that you're anti-Semitic and I'm, I'm going to be the one who will sub in for you to tell you why they're just being a bunch of whiny weasels. And I'm not going to end it just um, being a firm where Jews fight back against other Jews who are claiming things are not anti-Semitic, um, that are claiming things are anti-Semitic when they're not. I, I want to get an Asian, you know, who can combat other Asians. I want to get a black person who can combat, like, uh, you know, black people. Like, that's the thing. You go out, you live your life, and then all of a sudden, someone from these racial groups, they claim that you're doing something to attack them, and you can't even defend yourself. You know why? Because you're a white man of power, and it doesn't matter what your opinions are, it doesn't matter what scientific knowledge you have, you're not in the group of people that's allowed to have an opinion. But you can potentially hire a representative, an Asian American who can defend you against Asian American, a lady who can defend you against ladies, a gay that can defend you against gays. It's a new type of legal firm where you you sub in the right racial group to argue against the racial group that's accusing you. And once again, the title of the company, it's going to be the Anti-Bullying by Claiming Bigotry, Bigotry Association of America. Um, and I'm not against hiring actual lawyers to work at this firm. If you've got legal skills and you're also of one of these, um, that that's kind of the irony is that we can only hire minority groups here. Because we don't need any white people to work here. That's not what we're looking for. I'm looking specifically for Asian American lawyers uh, or just people who are well-reasoned or just willing to be an ass. If you're, You don't even need to be that smart. You don't, you don't need to have legal skills. If you're willing to just get out there and be an ass and fight back against uh, some of these people who like to claim bigotry, um, then, you know, 
I, I, you're hired. So hit me up. Resumes, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. We're going to try and get this firm off the ground and we're going to try and help everybody not be bullied by face claims of bigotry. Uh, all right. Now, before I get into uh, the interview I did, it wasn't really an interview. CPU God, he came on here. He gave us an entire presentation on uh, some of the back-end technology that's going to be utilized for these uh, potential COVID passports and the things that we should be aware of about the technology behind it. Um, But there was one weird uh, little news story about this uh, Chinese guy who is uh, getting undressed. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this. I think the context of it would have made sense if he was, you know, if we were like going to fight someone and he wanted to join the armed services and they're like, dude, I don't know if you're a real patriot. And then that's a great move where you pull off your shirt and you're like, no, I fought in other wars and look at the, I didn't watch the videos, but I think he was talking about war wounds, but I didn't watch the videos. I don't know what happened. It just seemed like he was wearing the wrong shirt for like a quick exposing of wounds. Like this guy did a full strip tease and he was really slow and dramatic about it. And it also seemed like he was around a group of people that weren't really accusing him of being not patriotic or that Asian Americans are some way less American. So it seemed like a little bit of an out of place display of, listen, I'm going to get undressed, and why is there a car driving right at me? You see, this is the problem with trying to broadcast in your car in public parks, is you think you find yourself a nice corner where you can yell about Asian Americans who are getting undressed and exposing their scars, and then someone will just creepily drive right up to your car and stare at you and go, I know you're talking about Asian Americans, and I know that you're not Asian American, and I also know that you haven't yet quite created your law firm of the anti-racist bigotry. I already, I, I need a new name. I can just, uh, from the fact that I can't reference my own thing, 30 seconds after talking it, um, I can tell that I need a new name. Next news story. Biden calls infrastructure plan a once-in-a-generation investment because no one is dumb enough to try and do this twice. And also, if it's such a good investment, if government's so good at recognizing investment opportunities to get off the ground, things that will be essential for the American people, that we're going to drive massive growth, why would you only do it once? If you're such a genius that you can sit down and figure out, hey, if I put $2 trillion into roads, we're going to end up with economic growth worth $7, $8, $9 trillion. So you're only going to do that once? What are you trying to tell me? You're anti-economic growth? That even if you can figure things out to a T, exactly where to spend the money that's actually going to drive returns? Or are you telling me that this is the only time ever in all of American history, past, present, or future, where we've got an opportunity to make an investment that will drive economic growth? If that's the case, then we better cut back other government spending because this is the one time where we're actually seeing the stars aligning properly where government funds can uh, create some economic return. So you better hop on this opportunity and then, you know, unwind all the other programs because apparently those aren't good opportunities. This is the only one that's your claim. And now here, I would like to play for you uh, the Saki lady who's given her pitch for it. And I've worked in sales a bunch. And after listening to more of um, this uh, Jen Saki lady, I'm starting to realize I think my mistake in sales is that I've tried to make sense. That when I talk to potential clients, I try and tell them about how my product actually works. You know, I'm really trying to pitch some of the benefits of it. And you listen to this lady and you realize I'm doing it all wrong. You can just, you, you're better off saying things that make no sense. And here, let me roll the tape. You've just repeated what the president was talking about yesterday. You want corporations to bear the brunt mm-hmm. of the $2.25 trillion over eight years. But there are these calculations now that... The corporate tax hike is not going to raise that much until 2036. So I'm curious where the rest of the money comes from. 
Well, as was outlined in detail in our plan, uh, we're talking about paying for an eight-year investment over the course of 15 years. And that, given that the in, the investments are short-term investments, uh, investments that are temporary, we actually would more than make up for the cost of these investments over time. And one of the most... It's an eight-year investment, and it's going to be where you see it's it's we're we're doing an eight-year investment, so it's eight years worth of money, but we're spreading it over fifteen years, and the returns are going to be there. So this thing's going to be a money maker. Let's continue. Colorful examples that the president used yesterday. He asked if people remembered a bridge going down, but only five percent of the spending in this package goes towards roads and bridges, and I'm curious why that number is so low and something that is being sold as an infrastructure package. Uh, we're actually selling it as a once-in-a-century or once-in-a-generation investment in uh, partly our infrastructure, but partly uh, industries of the future, American workers and the workforce. And there are areas like broadband, which maybe is not a physical bridge, but one-third of the country doesn't have access to broadband. So that impacts workers, workers who have been working from home, kids who are trying to learn uh, at home, uh, parts of the country where they can't have jobs, where they're working remotely. We feel that that is an area where we can improve, expand access, and as a result, be more competitive with the country, with other countries, I should say. There you go. The trillions of dollars that they're telling us are going into economic development, uh, going into roads and infrastructure and bridges falling down is actually so that people can get broadband. Was there was there a big problem? Is there a major problem in this country that people don't have access to Internet and are companies not able to get them them? Isn't that what uh, Elon Musk was working on with Starlink? I mean, if there's an opportunity for people that don't have Internet, can you explain to me why it is that we need government to make the investment in infrastructure for people to get better internet service? What am I missing here? I mean, I'll just go conspiracy, like internet wants to, uh, government wants to actually own the infrastructure here so that it can uh, better, uh, you know, not even need to buy the data from companies or not even need the NSA to hack the companies to try and get it. Or do they have an in with someone that Biden's just giving a huge handout to someone that they're going to make the investment into fiber cables at the expense of AT&T and now some other company is going to profit? Or are they trying to just stay ahead of Elon Musk? Elon Musk, he's making this investment in satellites that he can provide internet to these people. But government's like, listen, we don't want some private individual to be able to get good goods and services to someone that might need it at a cost that's profitable. We're going to, we're going to beat him. What is going on here? What? It, and then uh, by the way, I, I don't want to foreshadow too much of, but like, are we talking about farmers? Is that what we're talking about? Like people that don't really need the internet? Are they trying to make sure that everyone has access to internet because there's some sort of a connectivity that everyone's going to be responsible for? And so they don't want excuses that you don't have the technological resources to opt into some sort of a tracking network. Don't want to foreshadow too much of what's coming with CPU God. He has an excellent presentation, but I'm just saying, why, why is it the government needs to uh, make a cross-nation investment in broadband? I'm just going off her comment. I haven't actually looked at where all the investment dollars are going, but that sounds pretty uh, flagrant that you and I would have said, hey, $2 trillion or 3 or whatever it is, $4 trillion investment in roads. I'm not sure that that sounds too smart. But now it turns out this thing that was being sold as an investment in our critical infrastructure and bridges that were falling down, turns out only 5% actually go into that. Most of it's going... So at least sell us on an internet bill. Sell us on the farmers that don't have access to porn and they're putting their dicks into their cows. If that's the news story that you need to share with us that we'll go, hey, yeah, I think it's smart to get some broadband internet going. Let's have that conversation. Conversation. 
Now, lastly, before we get into my two segments, first one being with the CPU God, and then uh, a secondary one where um, I talked to a fan about uh, NFTs, kids making all sorts of money trading crypto backwards and forwards. He's trying to get as many people into the market so that he can see what's going on with the orders. He's got he's got boiler bands. He's got technical charts. He sees what everyone's doing. He just wants money in the market so he can trade it in every direction. He didn't say that. I'm putting words in his mouth, but he does uh, give us some interesting insight into some cryptos you might want to take a look at if uh, you made some money with Bitcoin and now you're starting, uh, starting to get a taste in your mouth for crypto, realizing, hey, I think there's some profits here. I do think this is the wave of the future. I do think this is the way to combat uh, government because their chief good is currency. Uh, So, you know, more to come. But first, I'm working on my anti-vax arguments. And I want to be clear that uh, I'm not not anti-vaccine in general. And I could see myself at a future date even getting these COVID vaccines. At the moment, I just don't really feel that comfortable about it. And because of, uh, and I think other people, like, I encourage everyone to go get it. Go be my guinea pig. As many people as possible. You want to go try this thing? And then six months from now, we can find out whether or not there actually aren't any, uh, you know, side effects or other stuff. Great. Please, please go try this thing and be the guinea pigs. It's stage three study right now. You get to participate in it. You don't often get to volunteer at these things, especially, um, you know, without being able to sue anyone if things go terribly wrong. Uh, so, you know, I I encourage everyone who's out there in as many different groups of people with as many different, like, let's get all that data. Let's improve humanity by all taking part of this study of whether or not this vaccine will work. Um, but in all truth, I'm not against, I'm not necessarily against getting the vaccine. We had the conversation with Dr. Krim. I think it's good to actually speak to people that know medicine and not myself. He's told you he doesn't think it's going to make horrible changes. I'm not telling anyone who is in a risk category. Like, I also think it makes a lot of sense. My grandparents got it. That probably makes sense. They're in a risk category. Probably makes sense for them. My feeling is uh, there's been something fucking creepy about all the misinformation around COVID. There's something really creepy about the way that they locked us down. And now there's something really creepy about the way that they're trying to push vaccines and create COVID passports. Now, is this all a thing uh, where they're trying to create a boogeyman so that they can force us into like the way that we all just opted into staying into our homes? Maybe we opt into self-tracking and we uh, like maybe maybe that that maybe that's been their whole their play the whole time. And the whole vaccine thing like has nothing to do with it. I'm just saying, I think anyone who's been following the news over the last year, we've seen misinformation when it comes to um, medicine. We've seen panic here that has driven decisions. We've heard, listen to the scientists when they're clearly lying to us. Uh, There's a lot of, like, if you're just following the news and generally a little bit skeptical, there's a lot of reasonable things to be concerned about. And the fact that people are pushing on, pushing this on us, not just pushing it on us, but in the bully framework of like, if you don't do this, we're not allowed to have freedoms. That's the part where it just starts to irk me. Uh, so, and then also I feel my, my mom started pressuring me to get it. And, and like, it was, it was kind of a funny phone call. So I'm just starting to kind of put together my anti-vax arguments. Um, I did a whole Twitter thread. If you're not following me at Robbie, the fire, you can go see that. And it's fun because, uh, you know, you get you get the engagement. You get to write it right as you're thinking it. It's uh, pretty immediate. It's almost like uh, stand up in that way. And then I also get feedback because people are able to contribute articles back to me. Uh, and I read. Like I said it on. I'm a Twitter. I'm, I'm a sucker for Twitter notifications. But I do appreciate that sometimes people in the audience have seen and read articles that I haven't. Uh, you can always email them to me at robsnewsroom at gmail.com. But anyways. 
Go follow me on Twitter. Uh, I tweet every morning, basically at like 8, 9 a.m. when I'm reading the newspaper, I tweet out the articles, and sometimes I tweet out jokes, and then some days I don't tweet out anything because there's nothing interesting in the news. But here are my anti-vax articles. First, as I said, I've got a general distrust in Fauci and government information. I think the latest and clearest example is you saw when Rand Paul um, got into it. Firstly, I mean, you can go back to the archive of Rand Paul grilling Fauci, and I think on most of them, Rand Paul was right. He was right on the schools. He was right on a bunch of them. The most recent thing was he called him out for wearing double masks. And then uh, it got confirmed by the CDC that um, what Rand Paul was saying was accurate, that people have been vaccinated. There's no evidence that they're, uh, you know, spreading viruses, and so they don't need to be wearing those masks. Of course, did Fauci come back out and make a statement and apologize to Rand and say, hey, I'm being full of shit and making science-based scientific decisions based on conjecture, which I'm not even so 100% on that word. I mean, I've used it a bunch. I like the word. I think I know what he's getting at. Here's the next one. AstraZeneca. They clearly cherry-picked trial data. They forged some of that earlier information. Even Fauci's like, man, they shouldn't have done that. It's not going to like great for uh, for the misinformation. Now you get more and more stories about blood clots. It's just more and more stories about it. And at the same time, government's still saying, hey, it, we still, it's better than nothing, so we want people to take this thing. So you've got company, you know, we all said, hey, it's, isn't it a little bit fishy how quickly these things went to market? Then you got one, it gets to market and finds out the information that it got to market with was like we and this is just the extent that we know that they were being dishonest but we know that there was some dishonesty there then you have that there's it came to market based off of phony data size and scope of the phony data i can't speak to i can just speak to the fact that you know they were trying to get it out there and they you know at least fudge something and now all of a sudden you got all these blood clots and you still got world leaders saying hey it's important that everyone who can be taking this take it because you know we've got this vex we've got this virus thing which uh according to them is scarier than an astrazeneca vaccine and even though astrazeneca is not the main thing being used in this country um fauci himself is still saying, hey, that's better. You know, people should be taking it. Our country sold, uh, sent a whole bunch of it down to Mexico. So it's still, even though it's not Pfizer, Moderna, or um, Johnson and Johnson, Johnson and Johnson, it still is a um, indication that the powers that be, including Fauci and our own regulatory system, which I think has approved AstraZeneca, is not working properly, and they're not being that honest about what's going on. All right, here's a crazy one. Vaccine death numbers are up nationwide. So if you look at the CDC information on vaccine deaths, usually you can see in the last couple of years, it was floating around like four to 500. We're now currently at 2000. And if you look at the actual death chart, and now you might say from the amount of people that got vaccinated, an additional 1500 um you know, 1,500 deaths out of the amount that got vaccinated is not that huge, but the chart actually looks like a, like a fucking rocket. It's like blast off. If you were, if you were, could have somehow invested in the vaccine, um, vaccine death rate future, your profits would be unbelievable, maybe more than Bitcoin over the last three months. If you were, if you had invested in that, like it was a stock, like if there was an option for, um, vaccine deaths going up after the release of Pfizer Moderna, you would be rich as fuck right now. That, that That's what that chart looks like. And so I'll just tell you the crazy part about that. I've read three stories of death in this country because of the um, vaccines. One was an early doctor. I believe it was in Miami. Then you had that hot chick a couple weeks ago. In both cases, they said, hey, freak occurrence, no big deal. We're not even sure it's related to the virus. Okay. If this information is correct, someone sent me the chart and I looked at it. 
maybe maybe some random follower of me on Twitter sent me a phony CDC chart. Um, but I, I think I read this in two places. So go go do your own homework. I'm not saying I'm uh, I've got everything 100% correct here. I'm just throwing out the arguments. I'm starting to piece together. From my understanding, according to the CDC's website, there are 1,500 more vaccine deaths than in a typical year. And uh, also, I guess if we're going off years, that might just be, you know, the last three months. Uh, And I don't know what other new vaccines would be on the market that might have caused 1,500 deaths. Now, if you want to talk about interesting news coverage, how is there not news story on 1,500 different individuals? How come there's not a story on each grandma? Because remember, if it will save even just one life, that sounds like a lot of death. And I've only seen two newspaper stories about people that have died. And I like... I'm not seeing every single news story. I am reading the newspaper every single day, and I don't think there have been many vaccine death stories. The New York Post does like to cover them. They had the story earlier this week of the guy who took the Pfizer vaccine and his skin fell off. Um, All I'm saying, if I have this correct, there are 1,500 deaths because of um, these vaccines and almost zero coverage. And if the media is kind of in the game of creating hysteria, you think about the way that they cover other news stories, you would think there would probably be some coverage on that one. Maybe I have all the facts wrong. Email me, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. And if you want to talk about sensational sensational news stories that might just creep you out about this, like I said, there's the Johnson and Johnson of uh, the guy's skin, you know, came off. And then you also had Johnson and Johnson messed up, messed up. I think it was uh, a couple million vaccines. They found out that a couple million of their vaccines uh, got contaminated. Now, luckily, I don't think those went to market, but. I am saying that, you know, these super trustworthy companies are somehow contaminating their own viruses. And but the good news is if you if you end up with a contaminated virus, of course, you can sue them. No, I forgot. You're not allowed to because these companies were identified from any lawsuits. I'd also I need to do a little bit more research onto the full scope of what that means and what that looks like. And if they use fraudulent numbers in order to get this to market, if that will still um, hold up. But you know, if these people are so confident that this vaccine is good and that there aren't going to be long-term health effects, why is it that they would only bring it to market if the risk of long-term side effects are on you? Let me repeat that. So they brought it to market, but they, I think they said when they, when they did the uh, emergency authorization, um, I'm assuming that they said we're only bringing this to market if we can't be sued, which means that they don't want the risk of long-term health effects. They don't want that. And remember that this is a product that we really need and that they could be pricing. However, now maybe that was part of the price negotiation was that they said we're going to offer it at affordable rates, but then we can't be sued. And then maybe that's an interesting conversation that government should let us know about where they're saying, listen, this thing was so important to get out there that normally, you know, lawsuits are kind of priced into these medications. And so in this case, but then maybe we should change the way healthcare works in general. Maybe we should actually have a conversation about, um, all of like the, what do they call it? The, the uh, male practice suits, because maybe that's actually what's driving up all of healthcare. And if that's true, let's have that conversation. If you got problems and we know about it, why not address them and fix them? Uh, but in terms of news coverage, I mean, how is that not interesting that these companies have been, and there's no talk about it. How is that not an interesting conversation to get the CEO of Pfizer on CNN and go, listen, if you really swear by this thing, why is it that if it, why is it that you would only give it to people if they can't sue you? Like, are you really that sure that this thing's going to work if you'll only put it into somebody if you can't be held responsible if something goes wrong?
And then here's the last argument that I'm going to put out there. And this came from an interesting store called offguardian.org. Um, I'm a sucker when it, when it comes to statistics, I'm not good enough in math to differentiate fact from fiction. It's like, I've said it before. It's like horoscopes. You know, you can tell me a nice story about how the stars are lining up and therefore I'm going to find love next month. And sure. I don't know. Maybe I, I can't, I can't tell you one way or the other. And I get that horoscopes are, uh, you know, fucking stars. And so not really that scientific and numbers are scientific. What I'm telling you is I'm stupid. And so to me, I, I, I they both, it, I, I go off of like reasoning. And so if something sounds reasonable, I, I don't know, I guess it sounds reasonable to me that, that, which is not the most scientific standard. I'm just being upfront with how stupid I am so that, you know, you, you, you know, not to rely on my interpretation of this. Anyways, I was reading this article and he was talking about, um, how we are the Guinea pigs for this thing and how normally we're not like, forget phase three trials. The minimum amount of time for phase three trials to happen didn't even exist for these vaccines, but this sounded really, really interesting to me. So I'm going to read it first and then I'm going to tell you the way I understand it. And then please, you guys are smarter than I am. So email me robsnewsroom at gmail.com. Um, this sounds fantastic and is a much better marketing strategy than reporting the absolute risk reduction. The absolute risk of developing COVID-19 symptoms without the vaccine is supposedly 0.88% and with the vaccine 0.044%. In absolute terms, the effectiveness of the vaccine is 0.88 minus 0.044, a risk reduction of 0.84%. Now, I think if I'm understanding this correctly... What that means is like naturally, and I'm going to make up numbers here, but just to show you the way that it's being marketed. Let's say naturally, um, 80% of people that get COVID-19 don't actually showcase symptoms, right? And then you take this shot and it boosts you from 80% chance um, of not showing symptoms to 95% chance of not showing symptoms. So what did the vaccine do for you? Well, it increased your ability to, I guess, fight off the virus and not get sick by it by 15%. So if you wanted to sell me this vaccine, honestly, you would say, hey, this thing is going to boost your ability to fight the virus by 15%. The way that they are marketing it is that this vaccine will help protect you from the virus, where it will reduce your risk of showing any symptoms by 95%. They're building in your natural ability to fight the virus, and then they're adding what the vaccine boosts it by, and they're just giving you the total number. They're not just telling you, hey, what the vaccine will do for you. They're telling you the total risk of showing, um, of uh, I guess, showing signs or showing symptoms is going to be just 5%. However, like I said, I'm not working off these guys' numbers. If 80% if 80 of us don't show symptoms anyways, you're not helping me from 0 to 95%. You're giving me a 15% boost. And then the risk versus reward conversation becomes, is a 15% boost worth the risk of the fact that you don't know if there's going to be long-term health effects from this? One. Two, um, is it even worth the cost and the labor or whatever else of me having to show up somewhere for a 15% increase? And then the other thing that I think is important, and like if you were the news, this is the conversation you'd be having. Hey, if you're in this age demographic, here's the risk of getting long-term symptoms from COVID-19. Here's your risk of death. And um, that versus, you know, it's a risk versus reward conversation. 
It's like, what risk is on my plate by not getting vaccinated whatsoever? What risk is on my plate in terms of putting an experimental vaccine? And then just to bring this full circle, you can be anti this vaccine and not be anti-vax in general. Uh, the best proof of that argument is what I said earlier when it comes to the CDC numbers, that if, if it's in fact true that there are um, substantially more deaths this year due to vaccines than in a normal year, then that means that this vaccine is more dangerous than your typical vaccine. And so it might make sense to oppose these vaccines and not oppose all vaccines. All right, let's move on from this. The point I'm just trying to make is anyone who's skeptical of these vaccines, I think it's reasonable to be skeptical. We could be totally wrong on this. It could turn out to be that everyone who gets this thing a year from now, they're totally fine. No big deal. I don't know as to whether or not we're really that, uh, maybe we should be more exp uh, afraid with COVID than we currently are. Maybe the vaccine, I can't tell you the answer to every one of your life's questions, but you know what I can tell you? That sheath underwear is really comfortable. I can tell you that, you know, I like to speak to things that I can speak to. Sheath underwear, use promo code RYM. You're going to get 20% off. You're going to have comfortable moisture wicking underwear and it's summertime. Don't be one of these people that all of a sudden it's summertime and you're like, listen, I went into summer with bitch tits. So that's it. I'm not exercising. Don't be that way. You can change tomorrow. That's why I'm parked right now outside of a track. I'm pretending I'm going to go run on. And guess what? I'm wearing my sheath. You know why? Because if it's hot out, your sheath is going to miss wick away that moisture. You're not going to deal with as much chafing. And then you put your, your, your dick into the sheath hole. There's not as much flopping around, keeping things in place. Great underwear for if you're working out. And so I recommend it right now. Don't think, hey, I've got my bitch tits and it's summer and it's over. There's still time to work out. And when it's hot weather, that's when your sheath really starts paying dividends. Comfortable year round, excellent for exercising. Excellent if you're exercising in the hot weather. So be prepared for summer. Get outdoors. You want to actually be healthy, boost your health. You know, let's speak to the positive. All this talk about viruses, all this talk, do what you can, control what you can, try and actually uh, be healthy, get some exercise in. And uh, of course, if you use promo code RYM, you're going to get 20% off. I am uh, very pleased to have with us Andrew at CPU God. He is our uh, tech wizard of the Run Your Mouth podcast. And you're here with some real insight on what exactly is so terrible with the possible COVID passports. Yeah, I'm very, very concerned. Um, you know, I actually um, was surprised to discover that the technology that I've worked with in my career is very much implicated in these things. And when I started doing research, I realized uh, it isn't just a very, very bad thing for liberty. It's a really concerning development. It's a really stupid and idiotic implementation of technology that's barely ready for production, ready for showtime. And uh, here we are suggesting it as a way to ruin the lives of really the entire global population. So before, because uh, you actually uh, have some of the technicals on how the technology might work and exactly uh, why it would be such a terrible introduction for humanity, allowing this technology to go live. Uh, but before we get into that, so I was just thinking the other day, if you kind of recap what's happened with this virus and why people are so willing to just kind of accept crazy things such as having a COVID passport or just staying in their homes into their lives. Um, first and foremost, government kind of overstepped its boundaries by forcefully shutting down businesses and recommending that people stay home or wear masks and all the shenanigans that we've seen. Now, part of that was when there were at-risk people for this virus, we did this thing where we kind of felt like, well, it's not fair for the capable people to go to work. And I was thinking about this today. 
like we don't function as society like that. We don't all sit in wheelchairs because some people are in wheelchairs. We don't all stop having sex because some people can't have sex. That's not the way. I mean, I'm not having sex. I'm not telling everyone else that they can't. That's not the way that we function in society. We don't go, hey, because some people are poor, everyone's going to be poor. This is a weird thing that because there were some people that were at risk populations as opposed to saying, and by the way, sometimes having to confront a harsh reality is good for people. Sometimes when you find out you're too fat to go to work because you're, you are you put yourself in a risk category, maybe you actually make some changes to your life. We you realize, shit, I guess, you know, I'm actually kind of confronting my own decisions here a little bit. But anyways, we've done this crazy thing where everyone stayed in their homes for a very long period of time. They thought that there was this risk of death from this virus. Not sure how true any of that is. And now they will do anything because like just anything as if government's doing them a favor. doesn't matter what the prescription is. Like they're so bought into the fact that if they don't, if they are not staying at home wearing a mask, that they're going to die, that like any alternate, like, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what they have to give up in their heads. It's, it's the only way that society can possibly move forward, which to me is the great mind fucked of, of 2020 and the coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, I'm in complete agreement with you there. And it's, you know, my opinion that, the root cause of this is just a complete and total separation of values between the various people involved in this relationship. You know, you've got the tech people who are quite happy being miserable. I mean, fairly enough to say, I believe. And um, you've got, as you've identified, the majority of the population who just wants to get on with their lives and stop this. Um, and the combination of these two things couldn't be more clear what it implies. It's going to be used to incentivize some bad behavior. So when you say, I'm just curious, when you say that tech people are miserable, so in your eye, like these are just miserable fucks. And so like they almost want more of a world of misery and maybe it's not conscious, but it's just the way they're more comfortable. Like what, what, what exactly um, do you think you're kind of alluding to there? The, um, the tech space has um, of course a lot of different kinds of people in it, but the kinds of people that work on things dealing with say decentralized networking, peer to peer technology, things that deal with actually what's called like viral networking or swarm networking. These are the people who are also some of the heaviest like COVID idiots, you know, like the really just dumb uh, kind of zero COVID crowd that's out there. And so there's a real, um, I think, alignment of values between being locked down and um, just the kinds of interests and the kinds of socializing that these people tend to do. They, um, they were living on lockdown for years before 2020 came around. And so for them, nothing really that drastic happened. And um, these are also the people who are responsible for the technology building out the Excelsior pass and other things like it. So I really think that it's an issue of uh, just very different motivations, powering different sides of these relationships. So even just to make it like, give it a, like a less nefarious framework. If you're a person who really likes staying home and playing video games, that's your thing. You might invent more technologies for more video games because that's what you love. The same way I love stand-up comedy and I love it so much that I started doing it because I love it so much. I'm trying to contribute to it and create more of it. And I, it's also because I want to get paid doing it. And I think uh, potentially I could become great at it and make an income doing it. Those things are all true. But the less nefarious thing is it's part of my lifestyle. And so I've invested myself into it. On the same way, people who are really into their computers and staying at home are probably invested into the technologies that would allow more people to do that. 
And so, it, you know what I mean? They're almost like uh, pro staying at home, staring at your computer lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, as a result of that, these aren't the people who really would go to that Billy Joel concert at Madison Square Garden that they're trying to, you know, rope people into. They wouldn't go to the Brooklyn Nets game that they trialed out the Excelsior Pass with. So um, they're really only thinking about the implications of what they're working on, and they're not seeing the bigger picture because it's just not interesting to them. I think that right. is kind of just the unfortunate truth of the people that make these products that people use every day. What is the, and I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun on your presentation. You know what? Why don't I hand it over to you? You've got a uh, presentation on exactly how the um, COVID passport technology might work. And not just that, but why it's something that we really don't want to see in action. Like, I think some of us just conceptually understand that it, um, it that it, it creates more of a framework where government is tracking us and um, it has more insight into who we are and we have less control over where we move, what kind of things we put into our body. There's kind of the larger framework of just going, hey, I think this is creepy and I don't like the idea of it. But just from glancing at your presentation, I cheated. I was curious to see what was in the slides. Um, it seems like you actually have the layout on specifically how the technologies um, will work and what they will erode, the things that technology was building that could have been good for us, that this will circumvent. Um, and so without getting to the punchline or, or stealing any of the insights, I'm going to hand this over to you so you can, uh, you know, this is the most prepared a guest ever has ever been, <laughs> but you, you brought in your, uh, you brought in the PowerPoint and you're good to go. So floor is yours. I'll interrupt and ask questions as, uh, you know, as I want to. It's my own Thanks, little private lecture. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because um, I threw these slides together because I think this is really important. Um, the more I dug into this, the more bewildered I became and the more concerned I became because you can hear the messaging about this app and about other vaccine passports other than the Excelsior Pass uh, in the media. And there's such um, a wide variety of stories they're telling you and all these different angles that they're showing you, but they're not talking about the actual technology and how it works. And to me, this is the scariest thing. Is, so, the, ex, is the Excelsior, I don't even know if I have that right, yeah. but is that just one of the main technologies that might be utilized for the COVID passports? So the way that these vaccine passports work is that they're basically all built on the same underlying foundational technology, but they have different branded apps uh, for the states that want to manage this shit show. Um, and so a lot of people in the libertarian circles have actually been saying that this is um, something that, you know, the whole like herd or uh, private businesses can do what they want people. Um, they've been expressing support for this because of some of the underlying tech. And because of course the whole thing, businesses being free to do what they want, but Instead of that, I'm going to show you how this is actually a really malicious perversion of the libertarian ideology that gave us some really important technologies for the future um, that will be getting eroded if we let this continue. Uh, so I'll get right into it. My whole goal here is to show how these passports actually exemplify the fact that the ideas of liberty work and that they really do see it as a threat over at uh, the cathedral. Um, these guys want to apply technology that was mainly made by libertarians to fight tech censorship and add central banking and protect our privacy. Um, 
And they want to use this stuff in a way that actually encourages tech censorship and props up central banks and exposes people's secrets. And if we don't do something about it really soon, they will succeed at this. And because of how the tech works, we'll never be able to take it back unless uh, a world even worse than the one we're about to enter happens to come. And this is what it looks like. And um, I just have to say, no one in their right mind ever sat there and said to themselves, this is what I want and need. Like, this doesn't make any sense to the average person. And the average person should never have to look at this and make sense of it. Um, but these were in the proposals uh, for most of the IBM um, bids for contracts of the various state and national governments that they got accepted to. The ideal so just because yeah. some people, uh, I, I, I will plug the fact that this is available in video form, and I do think it's going to be good for people to look at the slides, uh, but some people are going to listen to the audio version of this. So before you break down what I'm looking at in this slide, when, like I, I, I'm not a tech guy, so I have no idea what the hell I'm looking at right now. What is this? Well, right. And uh, that's fair. I'll, I'll think about that going forward. Um, basically, this is a diagram of all the different people that exist in the relationship between you and your health service provider in the new system that they want to put out. And the diagram shows basically a number of different people that all have devices that connect to a couple of disparate networks. These connections um, all are basically black boxes. No one's really going to be able to get a lot of insight into how they work because of the sheer confusion around how this tech works and how new it is. People aren't really ready to audit these kinds of um, networks. And so even people versed in this tech don't really have an easy way to be able to describe exactly what's going on. And that's kind of my point, because this is the so real let me ask, ideal let me ask, relationship that we should have with our medical providers. Okay. So let me just ask about the, um, the technology being implemented. Because I would have thought... I, and I'm not a tech guy. I would think this is a super simple thing to do. All that all that needs to happen, it's just a couple data points. You like you come into my office. I give you uh, a vaccine. I put into some online registry your name, maybe social security number, vaccine type, vaccine date. Now that's done. Now to create a barcode that goes along with that, also not that difficult. So what what happens is it goes into the registry that you've got in this thing. And then I give you a barcode that you put onto an app on your phone. Now you can go anywhere and they can do the, the, the barcode. They can go into the computer system and validate the fact that you've gotten whatever vaccine. That doesn't sound to me like there's a lot of tech that needs to kind of function there. I've seen barcodes on my phone to scan to get to a menu. So it doesn't you, like to me, I didn't realize that there was some sort of a um decentralized network or something that was similar to uh, like a Bitcoin type thing, like a, a blockchain technology here. I would have just thought that this is the digital equivalent of files on the internet where you're creating a, a file and some sort of a way that I, I guess it can validate that I'm the person off of a unique scan or, and, and by the way, maybe, maybe that system wouldn't be that good. So it'd be pretty easy to get, you know, a fake barcode or whatever, but what I'm looking at here seems to be a little bit more complicated than that, um, which would suggest more of like the tracking and this being a framework for m keeping much larger records than just, a, you know, whether or not you got the COVID vaccine. So explain to me exactly what like what this technology is and how it differs from that simple just barcode thing that, you know, I conceptualized just spewing mouth diarrhea over the last two minutes. <laughs> 
So uh, the main difference is in that bottom right-hand corner you'll see on the screen. And for those not watching, um, it's the Hyperledger blockchain network piece of this equation. Um, the invocation of a blockchain uh, for anything related to uh, our public lives is obviously something that's um, very much not battle-tested. The only blockchain that's used with any degree of transactional frequency is Monero. And of course, that's to buy drugs. Um, on the dark net. And so otherwise, and that, that's a really small subset of the population of humans, right? So what we're talking about is a really um, weird invocation of what was meant to be a ledger to do transactions in a decentralized way, basically meaning to replace the central bank with a bunch of voluntary participants who participate in and contribute to the processes that would normally be done by a central bank. And so to take that technology and then to put it into this process where you'll see uh, in a second, these are blockchains. They don't hold transactions for money. They hold people's identities. And it's a really sick and twisted, uh, to me, idea to use a blockchain for because blockchains are meant to be trustless and anonymous. You're not supposed to have to identify yourself to make the transaction. And so it's now, an inherently anti-libertarian idea. Okay, so just uh, shelve I, you and I. We're, we're big time libertarians, uh, and I think sometimes the issue with the libertarian talk is we start talking in the framework of ideals, which is great. Those those conversations are worth having. In this instance, I think that there's risk on everybody's plate, which kind of goes beyond the liberal, the libertarian, you know, I idol Like when we, when you and I start talking about, um, we should end the fed, which we should. And you and I could describe how that would benefit everybody and what they're losing out on by there being a fed. Uh, that's not as bad as if tomorrow, you know, cops are going to show up to your door and actually take your wealth. And if we're in that situation where cops are showing up your door tomorrow and literally confiscating your money, you know, I'd say, let's have the conversation about the cops confiscating your money. In this case, when it comes to the um, potential passports and them tracking everything that we're doing, like there's more risk on my, like to me, there's more risk on the plate than just like, hey, we've had the, we had this cool uh, potential framework for a blockchain and decentralized and like they're repurposing our technology. So wh what, I, what, what, I, what I'm going to ask of you is, why for them is it necessary to have a blockchain technology element here in order because my understanding of blockchain and i really only understand it in regards to bitcoin and the idea of the blockchain network was that it was decentralized and that there are incentives for everybody to run the network you know uh, and it, it's kind of like the hive mind there's a lot of different computers that are running it outside of that framework i don't understand why blockchain benefits you any more than having your supercomputers or even visa having different databases in 12 different locations well, like I, there's no reason for me to be on everybody's computer that kind of seems specific to bitcoin where everyone has a financial incentive to have the decentralized network but outside of the financial tie-in i don't understand quite how like quite, quite why you'd even try and utilize like blockchain technology so there's something i, I in my technical knowledge that i i, I guess I'm lost on the advantage to blockchain technology if you actually remove it from Bitcoin. That's actually um, a pretty prescient thing to notice, uh, Rob, because in fact, there is really no legitimate reason um, to use a blockchain for this. And in fact, 
it's naive and dangerous to use it. It's um, well past the fiduciary responsibilities that any engineer would have who's of sound mind because the people who are building this, this stuff know uh, the implications of what they're doing. They are, in fact, completely inefficiently and just for no other reason than to put it in there, putting this blockchain in there, which I think has no opportunity for success other than to completely fail the system that they're about to put into place. My feeling is that um, based on what I've learned and based on the knowledge I have about this tech, I worked for a company that tried to put blockchain to place that it didn't need to go. And um, I am shocked that, but I shouldn't have been, I guess, that venture capitalists actually funded some of these proposals that we're going to talk about now a lot heavier, even than the one that my company's boneheaded idea was, which was to basically monetize BitTorrent style file delivery uh, of, of people's content and movies. That didn't need a blockchain, and so it failed. And this certainly doesn't need one either, because it's absurd to think that everybody relies upon the same ledger for things like vaccines. Vaccines aren't money. You know, we get vaccinations, and that's not something that inherently generates value or gives us any capital. It's just like a status that we have. And in fact, it's kind of a private thing, right? And so it's an odd thing to, to do to both make this data public, yes, encrypted, but still public. And at the same time, fully dependent on everyone else's buy-in to work. That's just not how I understand medicine and public health even to work. Um, and so I think it's a really weird and disturbing facet to this whole thing. So I just ask you to kind of clarify on that last point. What about the, I guess, blockchain technology requires, I, 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 I kind of missed that last point where you're saying that in order for this to function, everyone needs to buy into it, which I, I guess to kind of run with that idea, I guess for me to go see a doctor and a doctor treat me, I don't need a council of a hundred of my friends to be aware of that I saw a doctor and for there to be treatment. Okay. I think I'm piecing together your That's idea right. there. But when the other comes, important yeah. component is that you've got these things in blockchains called miners, these um, third parties that are disinterested and only sit there to validate transactions on the blockchain. This is how people make money creating new currency for Bitcoin. Um, and it's an extremely inefficient process that um, takes opportunity away from using those resources towards more useful and productive means. So... When you take this wildly inefficient idea of a blockchain, then you apply it to this approach. Everybody needs to buy in and agree to use it. Otherwise, the approach doesn't work. When blockchains um, don't have um, buy-in, people don't leverage them, and then the whole technology falls apart. And so- right, but, but Just to um, explain that to possibly people who are new to blockchain or new to Bitcoin, because one of the arguments essentially against Bitcoin might be, Look at all the electricity this thing is using. It's basically just to keep a ledger. Why are we burning electricity to keep a ledger? Why is that Why is that worthwhile? And the answer is because sound finance that's decentralized will create such economic prosperity, it's worth the electricity that it would burn. And the reason why that's built into it is because you need this perfectly kind of the system is purposely inefficient because that's also, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's also what makes it so difficult to hack. It's like, the, it's almost like a yin and yang thing where like the inefficiency of it is what allows it to kind of function in such a diversified fashion. And then also tied to heavy electricity usage, which ties into like the mining rate and the fact that, you know, 
there's actually a finite amount of it, which is what makes it a sound currency against anything that government's producing. I don't um, think I could have said that better personally. Okay. So now that, I, now that we've established that, what, what's interesting is that crypto or blockchain technology is inefficient on purpose in a way that only makes sense as a value proposition when it comes to sound decentralized money. When it comes to sound decentralized money, blockchain is a perfect system for creating money that is scarce, that is a finite amount that's decentralized. It's like this perfect thing where the inefficiency is exactly what makes that thing work. When it comes to any other application of that, it stops making sense because when you think about technology, why wouldn't I want an efficient technology? Well, and so there is a lot of truth to the notion that blockchains are, in a sense, designed to be inefficient. Their design is what makes them secure and reliable um, over long stretches of time. But that's also a big limitation. And that also really only deals with the specifics of things like financial transactions. Medicine doesn't really work like money. And so it's kind of weird to think that like you can take a, the jab end of a vaccine and say that's like the money you're giving someone and then the, the wallet that you receive that proof into is supposed to be an equivalent to a blockchain bitcoin wallet it it doesn't make a lot of sense and um it's just it's a very weird invocation of this technology which so feels guess, very corrupt and corporatist to me so just to play devil's advocate um i guess one of the features about um blockchain specifically when it comes to bitcoin uh is that there's a perfect ledger and it's a perfect public ledger right so now i'm just playing devil's advocate mm. if theoretically you actually had a virus that was deadly which this one's not but theoretically you had a virus that was deadly and easily um transmittable and let's just go further with this theoretical um people did not want to willingly be around those who had not gotten a vaccine that prevented the virus? So we're not in the we're not in the structure of what is COVID. Where I've I put together a theoretical here, then I guess a perfect public ledger of who doesn't who isn't isn't vaccinated would actually be a practical tool. Um, if you were within the framework of, uh, you know, a deadly virus that you didn't want to be exposed to non-vax, but even that doesn't really make sense because if you're choosing to be vaxxed, you'd be protected from that person. So it still doesn't really make sense. Like what, you know, yeah. Blockchains are meant to uh, work in, I think, a cir circumstance where people want to deal with each other and where there's voluntary, you know, association going on. When you apply a blockchain specifically to learn who to avoid and who not to, I think that's where it just, it, it becomes a really weird prospect because um, it wasn't purpose built for that. And I think to try and force it into that framework could be, you know, devastating and it's consequences. Okay, so just to recap the starting point here, the um, build out of this technology is on a blockchain technology, like the build out of what will be the COVID passport is being built off of a blockchain technology. That is strange as it doesn't need a blockchain technology. And now let's move forward with, uh, I, I guess, a little bit more of the breakdown of why, uh, you know, why the actual tech app applications here are dangerous. Yeah, well, just to also kind of set up the framework for what the media is doing here to also kind of disinform everybody, um, how they're telling us uh, this will all work is that basically, oh, it's a phone app that you download, right? And so we're just, we just got done talking about Hyperledger and this blockchain that they're using. Um, 
And when you read stories in the media, you'll see that they say something like, oh, well, you get vaccinated, then you download your state's app. You the, the vaccination center will register your vaccination and put it inside of that app. And then you scan a QR code. Uh, and from there, you've got this QR code. You can display it to whatever, you know, Madison Square Garden or MetLife Stadium, wherever you're going. Um, and, and that's then, by the way. And just just to stop you there, that sure. alone is state mandated phone tracking technology that you might be required to have on you at all times. And it's not just a technology that's going to track where, where you're going, but it's also going to be tracking. Um, I mean, in, in this application, possibly just the vaccine, but who you are as a person from a health standpoint, and that's going to correlate to where you are and aren't allowed to go and who you are and aren't allowed to interact with. Uh, and I mean, how, how far does that go? from monitoring, you know, whether or not like you're at a bar and you had beers and all of a sudden the cops, you know, they don't even need to do a roadside sobriety test or maybe you did heroin. Like who knows that that's like a different level of not freedom where it's like a lot of us are creeped out by forget the framework of cops. I don't know if you've ever gotten like a red light camera and it's just like, all right, at least if you bust me, I get the ticket. But if you're not even fucking there, like, and that's not helping me. There's no one who, who that red light camera is helping. It's helping your revenue. So imagine just that speeding ticket structure, but all of a sudden for things like, I don't know, you ate McDonald's after two in the morning or who the hell really knows what they'll be able to. And you want to get really creepy with it. I know that government's in the game of big data. I know they purchase it from AT&T. I know the NSA likes it. I know that I don't understand the next generations of AI. I don't understand exactly how they want to manipulate our moves, behavior, understand our thought patterns. All I know is that they're in the business of big data. Like that's what they want. They purchase it from each other. And it's very important for government to get its hands on this. Um, and so to think that we might willingly give them the framework by which they can collect more information on us in a more private way, like you, even without getting into more of the, the tech that you're going to speak to just off the top of my head, here are some of the things that are really creepy about a health app that will track you that you will be required to have in order to go about your life. Yeah. I mean, so that's only right. Like when you scratch the surface, even I think when you look at um, what it implies and also the, the characterization of this as a health app is even interesting to me because um when you talk about apps, who needs to be uh, incentivized into downloading a phone app? Like when I look at, you know, someone's phone, that's not mine. I'm just like amazed at how many just rows and rows and rows of apps are on these people's iPhones. Like people download apps vociferously and you don't even need to give them a reason. And so it really says something that they are trying to encapsulate the entire experience of this thing into a phone app. Um, that then you are going to be incentivized into using. You shouldn't have to give people incentives. Phone apps are just kind of fun, right? And so it doesn't foreshadow well what's coming. But the truth is... Um, Wait, do we, not, do we skip a slide there? Did I distract you from, uh, from one of the points? No, no, that's it. Oh, okay. We're going on to what this really is. Uh, the entire point of the vaccine passport is for people to not understand the true nature, I believe, of what actually is being built. Because it's not just an app that's on your phone. It actually consists of several apps that are on many different devices uh, and may not be owned by you even. It also involves a build out of a completely new network. And it, as I mentioned earlier, is all being stored on a publicly accessible blockchain 
a database of everybody's identity and of their wallet information, including potentially what's inside of it, like what certificates they have. The thing that I just need to stress is that truth management is obviously something that um, we really shouldn't give anyone power uh, control over. But to realize that this is something that was mandated by the state should give us a lot of concern. Um, so a lot of the ways that this stuff will work, though, will look familiar to people who deal with cryptocurrencies, for instance. Even people who use two-factor authentication apps, like to log into your Gmail account. Um, this stuff doesn't look all that perverse. But and even for like Napster and LimeWire and BitTorrent users, which is the style of network they're using, the peer-to-peer -peer technology, this won't sound that bad. But you have to understand that these all were inventions that actually helped us simplify our relationships and bring us closer to our values. Bitcoin wallets, two-factor authentication, and Napster, all were really brilliant ideas. That's why when we look at what the ideal healthcare should be, it's pretty obvious that we can take that and say, this is what an ideal transaction looks like. This is what ideal email looks like. This is how you would ideally listen to music. No one asked for this. And that's the important thing to realize is that no one sat here and said, this makes sense. Someone said, let's solve a problem that hasn't yet been asked. This work started in 2016. This was ready to go before I even started hacking on the Ethereum blockchain myself. So, this is so I got to, I, I want to just pause you there for a second. So you're sure. saying that the framework to have blockchain, blockchain technology applications for health was built out a full four to five years ago prior to, um, I guess there being any reason for a vaccine type database. That's right. Okay. Now without going into like, I guess the conspiracy theory that, um, would suggest that they were waiting for this moment. Uh, are there any less nefarious applications or money-making opportunities that somebody would build this for because they just felt that like, I'll, I'll give you one, perhaps like, cause I've seen this, we had a, for example, we had an advertiser on part of the problem, UBDI, really cool company, which essentially, um, if you understand there's data being collected on you online, marketing companies will pay for that data. Uh, there are ways that you can try and own that data and at least take part in the profit. UBDI, what they do is the data becomes more profitable. Um, it becomes more valuable with them because you can participate in surveys, which then, even though you remain anonymous, you're just within the, the blocks of data. But since you validate some of the information, and by the way, I might not have this 100% right. He's, he, I think he listens to the show, so maybe he can come on and correct us, but since you participate in the information, it's a little bit val it's validated and it's actually more valuable for those companies and they'll purchase it from you directly because it's more valuable than when they purchase it from Facebook. Right. So yep. I would think theoretically within the health arena, you might have a similar type thing where as opposed to just my doctor, you know, having my, my digital file and doing whatever with it, if I own that digital file, firstly, it is a little bit easier for me to walk into a new doctor's office tomorrow I guess for treatment, because, you know, I can, I, as opposed to them having to call, like, I remember back in the day when I used to go to the, I, I don't go, I don't have a doctor now. I don't even know how they would get my medical file. But when I was a kid, I remember being at the pediatrician and there was like this fucking stack of whatever. 
I can understand why it would be helpful for me to have an app on my phone with my information. So in some rare instance where something happens, I get maybe, you know, they can pull it up on your phone if you get taken by an EMT or to go even further. I don't know what really goes on in the medical data field. I do know, by the way, when we're talking creepy shit, I know that Apple hardcore is trying to get into the medical game. The reason being, you look at all the fucking profits in medicine, and then you start looking in like your Fitbits and your this and your that, and then it tracking your health, whereabouts, blah, 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 and all that. There's there's money in that information. There's money in treating you. So I think theoretically, if I'm just looking, if I'm just forecasting ahead, I might go, oh, there's value in actually letting people own this data. And possibly, I guess there's a framework here where a blockchain network might allow you to um, profit off your own data or at least participate in that. So I, I, just to bring it full circle, what do you like? It almost sounded to me like you were trying to say that this was specifically built out because they knew that they were going to have an opportunity, you know, to use this when people were forced to use it and they're going to profit from it. But I would think that there are kind of some good applications for, you know, I guess a health blockchain type technology. Um, so I'll, I'll just pass it back to you to, I guess, further explain why you think that this was built with nefarious intentions. Well, nefariousness is um, kind of hard to prescribe exact motive to. But the, the things that I'm seeing are not so much um, about the fact that it was built before it was needed. Um a lot of companies made a habit out of throwing blockchain at industries X, Y, and Z and seeing what stuck. And um, I'm going to show that in a lot of the cases, I believe that's the case here uh, with these vaccine passports is that they actually uh, were really just like one of many ideas that they were throwing spaghetti against the wall. Many of these companies, a lot like my experience, you know, we were talking about, oh, we could have a blockchain for managing rights and we could have a blockchain for showing that someone has a license to watch this movie and, you know, the thing that you have to remember is that engineers are trying to make a good solution that um, is efficient and, and uses resources appropriately and doesn't over-engineer for the problem. And, um, you know, there's a certain degree of over-engineering that one could engage in where you're sort of like forgiven for it because, you know, you're passionate about it and all that. But the amount that we're talking about here is, I think, a lot worse uh, than what could even be so, described like, that way. If I was built... Okay. So just to put this in, you know, stupid people's terms for people like me, if you're building a bridge, right. And you've seen a bridge got a suspension system. The new bridges seem to have the high, low suspension system. So imagine if there was a secondary suspension system that didn't actually support the bridge in any capacity, I guess that would be over-engineering. There's no reason for it. You're trying to solve a problem. I get from point A to point B. If you work out the math on the suspension system, there's no reason for a secondary suspension system. You're not, you're, you're not actually doing anything. Maybe yes. backup. I don't know. So I guess what you're trying to point to, and I don't understand the digital infrastructure here, but what you're seeing is this is over-engineered. It, it's almost like if I pointed to um, a car that like had a, uh, like a, I, I literally, let's just go buffoonish here. If there was a car that had a tracking antenna on the top of it, and they were telling you that the tracking antenna was important to the engine, but you actually built cars and were like, no, no, no. You could remove that tracking antenna. You know what would be a good example of this? Do you remember there was a South Park where uh, they made that product better than flying and it had a dildo that went up your ass and then someone yes. pointed, the engineer came around and he's like, well, that doesn't need to be there for this product to work. <laughs> but it was better than the airports, right? That was, for yeah. everyone else, it was better for the airport. So you're looking at this and just basically saying built into this infrastructure is something that there's no reason for it to be there 
for the end result that these people are claiming that they're looking for, which is being able to identify you based off of whether or not you've, uh, you know, been vaccinated. Right. And so just like in the it thing, um, you know, basically there's a bunch of people now penetrating you unnecessarily uh, just (laughs) because it's a lot better than today um, or what the past year has been. And uh, that just adds again on to the insidiousness of this, because as I said, no one usually needs to be given an incentive like this or a a threat uh, to adopt things. And when they're taking advantage of these adoptions by throwing all this extra stuff into the mix, it really just reeks of corruption and corporatism and, um, you know, everyone kind of just scratching each other's backs. Um, Because again, I think this is an important detail. This isn't new over the over-engineering of, of our culture and of uh, how we run society. This is a, a workflow diagram on how discover weekly works for Spotify. There's no need to go into the details uh, for those who are just listening. The point is um, that it's absurd. You could make a playlist by asking your best friend or someone you trust for some good music recommendations and it would take them like two seconds. So to go through this whole endeavor, right. Um, of, going into all these different network nodes and doing a bunch of processing on data that they've collected on you over the years. Um, it never really was necessary. Spotify doesn't really resemble any sort of massive improvement in mu- listening to music, just like how Gmail put ads in our email unnecessarily. And that's a, an extremely uh, unnecessary amount of complexity to add to a product. And so it shows kind of who the originators of this tech is and where the ideas come from. They do not come from Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous um, Bitcoin inventor. They don't come from libertarian ideologues. They come from, you know, pencil put paper pushers, uh, mill management types, because this is the thing. Blockchain is truly libertarianism at its best. Um, it reeks of libertarianism. If you read that white paper, which I encourage everyone to do, it's at bitcoin.org slash bitcoin.pdf. Just about anybody uh, can understand that white paper. It does not require uh, a strong technical background. But as a very brief uh, description of what problem Bitcoin solved, decentralized networks um, always had this problem of really not being able to prove that um, some currency hadn't already been spent Blockchain solved that problem for the creator of Bitcoin. And it was really truly indirect response to the 2007 and 2008 financial crisis, which those of us who are libertarians would believe that the Fed was primarily responsible for causing. Uh, And what resulted from this invention, the singular libertarian idea, uh, it enabled black market transactions uh, for millions of people for the first time online, myself included. Um, Ross Ulbricht and I believe other people created uh, a website on the darknet called Silk Road, which used Bitcoin as its currency and relied on the blockchain's resiliency uh, to service tens of millions of dollars a month, I believe, in drug transactions. Um, And so this is like exactly what we want to see happen in the world, right? But vaccine passports are a terrible use case for blockchains, as we've just gone over and for peer-to-peer networks, and for digital wallet apps. There's really no good reason to do any of this. And let's just go into why they're doing it. It's because of this. 2% of the world's population owns cryptocurrencies today. That's 100 million people or more. 
there's 55% of the country who are now using 2FA uh, to get into an online account. So that's like 170 million people. What is uh, 2FA? Sorry, two-factor authentication. Uh, when okay. you use an app to verify your login. And then almost everyone in the world, except for Donald Trump, apparently, enjoys free music. And when you think about that, that means that there's these new attack factors being opened up for untold numbers of people. And I think that really is why this is being so hastily thrown at us and incentivized with concerts and sports games and things like that. Uh, well, okay. So we got to explain what, what do you mean by the attack vectors? Yes. So when you deal with um, network security or anything right. dealing with computers, an attack vector represents basically where the potential openings are for people to exploit and to get access to things that they shouldn't have access to. The digital wallet side of the COVID vaccine passports basically ensure that your health credentials and your health data are no longer your responsibility. They're now tied to a device you own. And there's a value to that potentially in a different kind of device holding that data, but it absolutely cannot be your smartphone, which is making connections to the internet many, many times a second uh, for every second it's on. The credentials that these wallets are using um, cannot be easily transferred, but they are easy to steal because you can take someone else's device and then pretend just to be them and open up their own app. And if they don't have a biometric scanner on the phone to verify a login, they could use uh, someone else's device and masquerade as that person. These are all just the obvious problems that will come about, you know, if we actually start storing people's health information in this fashion, because you have to remember, that means if you want to see a doctor, you've got to have your device charged. If your um, phone's malfunctioning, you've got to get a PC or a desktop somewhere that you can use to be able to fix the problems. And these are just not what wallets are for, right? You really need something like a safe. You so need some sort of saying, a permanent device that you don't touch a lot and you keep somewhere very safe and secret to use when you need to. Something right. Like so part of what, uh, and this kind of, it's kind of a weird trippy thing. The initial thing that we, or a theory that we kind of put forward is that since tech people are really interested in technology and building on that, they're kind of building pathways for all of us that structurally tie you tech technology because that's the world that they want to live in. And so now you've got health, which there's no reason to tie your health to technology. It doesn't have to be that way. I can show up to a doctor's office and I can get treatment, but because tech people are very like the same way I said, I'm a comedian. I like jokes. I'm contributing to jokes. These people are so married to tech that to them is like a natural framework for things. Like you said, you and I right. could get together. I could share music with you and you could come up with good recommendations. The, the computer guy who likes playing video games, he doesn't want to interact with other people. So it makes sense for him to build out this whole algorithm. And then it almost corrodes other people's approach to life because now it, like they can more easily just sit at home and rely on the, on the Spotify for music. And that's like further, you know, like the, the social media thing, which we all know, it, it kind of pulls you into social media, right? Mm -hmm. So you're saying that this is an extension of that, but for health applications where something that it really existed um, outside of technology in a good way is now kind of 
merging with technology in, in a way that it, it doesn't need to do. And then like, it also kind of forces you more into your phone where it's like, you can't, if you're an old lady now, you can't be divorced from technology and go see your doctor. Like people that, you know, if you were the guy who was like, I'm not interested in having a smartphone, I'm going to have a flip phone. You won't have that option anymore. You will have to have a smartphone. And then we also understand the way that these technologies are somewhat addictive. So it's like, even if you were that Amish person wanted to live on a fucking farm and you don't want to exist with technology, well, all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 we're creating like you have to. And so that's kind of part of that. I, I think that's basically your your larger argument here. Do I have that right? It is um, very much that issue. It is an issue of um, looking at the vaccine passport as some sort of an opportunity um, to play with some cool new tech. Whereas on the side of everyone else who's using it and has to live within that system, it could be pure torture or hell. I mean, you're asking people to potentially give up their religion, to give up their values, their ethics, um, the people that they care about, just to be able to participate in oh, this world. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm getting this even a little bit more here. So let's go back to my, my dumb bridge example, right? Sure. Now let's imagine that the engineer, like he... You want a bridge, so he'll build you what looks like a bridge. But the reality is he wants to test that secondary technology that's right. actually not necessary for your bridge. So I, I, the, the bridge example doesn't quite work. Like it doesn't visually, you can understand what I'm saying, but like it doesn't you know, quite it, though, yeah. it doesn't quite apply here. There's a secondary technology that doesn't need to work here that the tech people really want to experiment with, and so they're forcing us to digitalize a procedure that doesn't need to be digitalized in order to force everybody um, to kind of be their guinea pigs for this secondary technology that they want to get a better handle on. Uh, and I, I guess, but what, what, what then is the, the, the fear to you other than we're going to make, you know, my grandma, you know, who doesn't have a smartphone theoretically would have to get a smartphone for the app. What are the other risk factors of, I guess, letting these tech people um, develop, you know, I guess they're decentralized blockchain technology independent from Bitcoin. So like, let's say that's what they want to do is they want to create a financial incentive and framework by which they can uh, build out decentralized um, blockchain technology, not tied to Bitcoin or current financial incentives. So what do you think is the motivation there? So, you know, I think that, again, you have to remember just to separate the different stakeholders. But um, when you look at like who maybe has um, the most unsavory um, of goals and what they're thinking about. I think that the, the thing I would say is like, look at um, what it's going to cause people to do. They're going to have to buy in further and have a harder time getting away from what we all know is a really oppressive thing. I mean, think about how many people you've probably heard tell you, Oh yeah, you know, my next phone, I'm just going to get a flip phone or I'm just going to, uh, use FaceTime on my laptop to call people. I don't need a phone. Um, do you think that people will say that after they can't get any medical treatment, right? Or after they get denied entry into something that they care about? Um, you know, I could easily I've see had, becoming I, something that you can't even uh, go into church until you uh, prove I've, I have a good. I have a good example of exactly what you're describing here. I once had, I needed to go to the IRS website in order to get my own tax information to give to my accountant. He wanted the records of income for certain years. The only way I was able to get that information was by having a credit card. You're not able to, because they use two-point verification. One of the very, couldn't use a debit card. Now, at that time, 
There was a stretch of life. I'm by the way, this is not this is not an exaggeration. I'm a compulsive person. As a compulsive person who's also intelligent, I sometimes have to stay ahead of myself uh, and create frameworks by which I cannot act compulsively. And I'm telling you, I'm, this is not a lie. There was a stretch of life where I was going into the city every night. I would go to a bank in person, take out the cash I needed to get there and back, and be able to buy a single meal. But I didn't want a credit card with me because otherwise I, I like I didn't have money to spend and I'd be in a bar. Even I'm not talking about going blackout drunk or doing hair. I'm not even describing that. I can just tell you I was on a very strict budget trying to do comedy. And even if I was drinking four, five, six, like that meant that I wasn't doing comedy every night that week. So it was a discipline. I'm just telling you that was at one point in time. And that we're talking early. T- I was compulsive enough that I had a working system where I got the cash I needed for the night. No credit cards in my wallet, nothing because I was overspending when I was carrying a card, right? Now, all of a sudden, in order to interface with the IRS, I was forced to get a credit card, which I did not want. This, that because I might act compulsively, right? right? This is exactly that, where people who might not might not want to have a cell phone will actually be forced to engage in that technology for no real reason um, other than like, you know, government's kind of tying a service to that technology. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the only reason they could want to do that, just remember, the only reason that they can feel confident in doing this is because this tech isn't new. Um, these ideas aren't really new. It's just a new way to do it. And, um, you know, the, the big finale will kind of give uh, some closure to what all that means. But the, uh, the the thing I'll say right away is that the the fear of missing out is really not the issue. It's, it's the fear of uh, how you, your decisions will affect everybody else. And to put people in that kind of anxiety now on a blockchain where everyone's decisions do have a sort of impact on everyone else. And you got all these other external parties who are facilitating it and all these companies trying to get really close to people, right. And advertise their, their stuff that way. You start to see this could be a really, really horrifying world that we'd have to live in. Um, and I don't know if it would be something one could actually escape from easily because it's going to hit not just those of us who, you know, seek medical care. It's also going to really hit hard the people who provide it and uh, the professionals because the agent side of this relationship, remember we've got a wallet app and then we need agents, people who vouch for the credentials uh, of a person, say a doctor or a vaccination person who can um, stake a claim to the fact that you got a vaccine uh, at such and such a date. So, because if you, when you look at what it implies, it means that these professionals are going to be staking their reputations and their professionalism on a system that they didn't build and had no involvement in constructing. Typically, um, you seek out the requirements from your customer, but that's not how this is going to work. It was done kind of all in secret in the background um, at a couple of open source software hubs. The blockchain invocation is also further a problem because healthcare demands an inherently high trust environment and blockchains are meant to remove trust from the equation. And to me, that doesn't sit right. Um, You know, the other thing is like, by the way, just to kind of give the short marketing pitch on danger, as opposed to having a direct relationship with your doctor, we're giving more of we're giving more control over to government and tech companies over your relationship with your doctor. Right. And that's a weird place to be in, especially given the last year, because 
what it really starts to look like is that um, the pharmaceutical industry and the tech industry are kind of working together and um, putting up with various things and doing things for each other in order to get the return effect of being able to assimilate all these more people into this new system. Because the, the thing is, like, if you have a buggy application in your doctor's office, right? that's going to cause a lot of problems. It could like delay medical treatment. It could deny you entry onto a flight that you now have to get to after the treatment. Um, and even if like the software has a bug at a stadium, there could be riots, you know, there could be uh, stampedes. It could be really dangerous. And all of this liability, I mean, the doctors typically don't even have liability insurance for anything that causes uh, problems due to bugs and programs. And so how are you expecting all these uh, professionals to actually you know, keep a sane practice open. Well, it's sort of like they have no choice. And so the government will be able to impose this on people and people will have to put up with it, but it's all just going to be a bunch of sunk costs. It's, it's, it's a way to hide inflation, you know, and hide. Ooh, the- uh, I, I, I love a good inflation story, but you lost me there. How does this hide inflation? Well, because of all the incredibly unnecessary, wasteful, um, you know, malinvestments that have to go into these workflows and into these processes, no longer is a digital agent um, simply acting on behalf of a person. It's taking the place of a person in this new framework. Now, if, if the software says this person isn't a doctor, but the doctor himself knows he is, well, the truth is going to be with the app and not with what the doctor knows is true. And so what it's going to cause is all sorts of chaos that has to be mitigated, all sorts of new liability that has to be insured, all sorts of new dangers and problems that keep this bubble uh, that we've been. You're almost saying just as a, as a theoretical, it is a theoretical as, as healthcare costs go up and the reality of some of those costs going up could have been just solely inflation they'll now have something to be able to say the reason why it's more expensive is because we need to be able to validate everything digitally. And that's not necessarily accurate. I think we've said a lot of things tonight that are spot on. (laughs) I think this one might be a little more of a stretch. Well, so uh, again, blockchains are inefficient by design and they have not figured out a way to actually put this stuff into these kinds of generalized frameworks. And I'll get to more on that in just a second um, in the slides, but Basically, it's it's a it's a forcing function for new expenses that they're going to try to hide, you know, from the consumer. And if they keep it within the system, there's a chance that it doesn't trickle down. Because if they have all this integrated in a blockchain, the benefit for the companies is that they get to keep the money really tightly knit within certain circles, and the whole um, you know effect of um, inflation being caused by monetary base expansion uh, is lessened. So it isn't, I, I hope some people will kind of chomp on that a bit and give it some thought. It's not just me saying this. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to provide some, some links to other and analyses just, on that front. Okay. And just to, uh, I guess, state another concern is that, um, I guess if you understand the way government works and the way they get their profits, it's not by offering value, but it's kind of forcing them through, forcing people through their, like they want to control industries and limit them as much as possible to certain choke points because that's how they can make their profit, right? So if all of a sudden you take all of healthcare and it's got to be filtered through certain apps and certain technology, it almost becomes an opportunity for tolls, like that yes. you will have to pay government like a certain tax on 
your record or being able to get your information to a person. I'm not saying that that's part of what's being built here, but just in understanding government and the way that it can profit, um, taking what was a free exchange where I could walk into a doctor's office and just potentially pay him and get treatment and switching that over to a digital framework where uh, now there's certain, I, I, I guess, certain requirements of like the same way I need a license to drive my car or I need a permit to go do whatever activity, like you're now creating, I guess, some sort of a framework by which, you know, I, I not only as a doctor, did you need whatever liabilities, this, that, and the next thing before him, but now you also need to have the credentials to exist on blank digital network, which means that there are opportunities for a company like Apple to be that digital network and now profit every off of all of your transactions. And then what you and I fear most is like remove certain alternative type people. So if you've got a, a doctor who I, I think libertarians will, will understand what I'm describing, where you're just taking what could be a more open and free market and funneling it through government and big tech. Right. Um, that's a pretty good distillation of the concern there. And, um, you know, to go back to another thing you brought up a second ago, um, the alternatives, um, that also is important for a vibrant market, you know, competition. And what really concerns me is that as we consolidate our companies, um, they're also consolidating again in this way where antitrust might be a concern with tech companies. They can just use a blockchain and apparently get a lot of the same effect. But it's good that you bring up the whole thing about censorship because this is another really big concern. Um, the network that they're building as part of Excelsior and other vaccine passports it is in its very nature, peer to peer. And what that means um, is that the connections that are made to pass data between different devices on the network, they don't go through any middleman. The, the nature of peer to peer is that it's hard to track and it's hard to assign identity. Uh, and the other thing is it's, it allows you to get past a lot of regulations and, and kind of ridiculous laws. Um, intellectual property laws can be bypassed which I am not a fan of anyway, uh, know your customer regulations and other things from the Patriot Act. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer networking allows you to really bypass those things. And that's why governments, especially uh, the United States is our government, has always hated this technology. And they've, if anybody remembers Napster from back in the day and LimeWire and Kaza and all that stuff, uh, Mega Upload, right, Kim.com. These are not things that governments like. And so you might recall in 2012, there was the PIPA and SOPA acts where Congress was going to allow content owners to get websites removed from the internet just by the claim that there was a copyright uh, violation. And what happened was Wikipedia and a bunch of other um, huge resources on the internet did a blackout day. And it's funny because, um, they went on lockdown and sort of stopped um, serving up their products to people on that day. And it actually worked to stop a horrible bill from getting passed. But now that we're putting peer to peer back in um, 10 years later, almost we have to remember that state actors are the best. They're the experts at hacking these kinds of messages peer to peer. And so what we're doing is we're kind of setting ourselves up for a world where you know, the deep state intelligence agencies can run amok on these platforms and mess with them in a way that very few others can. Um, Wait, so you're and, saying that by, 
all right, just to I, to recap. Yes, we put forward that they're um, building an unnecessary framework for their intended technology purposes here. Now we were our question was what is the reason why they would want to do so, and I think what you're putting forward now is it will give them the the data they need for how to disrupt current peer-to-peer or other blockchain technologies because now they have a working framework for that to go to the most far-fetched extreme of what that what that means is you got to realize that um block um bitcoin is competing with the real good of the u.s government which is currency that's the product of the u.s government and it's really important to them uh it's what allows them to continue to print money distribute their inflation as widely as possible. And the more that they can do that, the more that they can essentially steal money from people. Uh, it's the scheme as old as time. Uh, bankers established it forever. Inflationary banking, it's what they're looking to do. U.S. government's doing that on the, okay. So having an alternative asset, which does not have the same risk of inflation because there's a, like, that's the entire point of the Bitcoin is that there's a finite amount. Um, as more people say, hey, I prefer this currency, it limits the U.S.'s ability to basically forcibly rob you because you you like you have no choice but to hold paper currency that becomes less valuable as they inflate. Now, it's been put forward that Bitcoin is unhackable and that nobody would have the computing technology to possibly disrupt it. Uh, in reading about that, it seemed to me like the one people that might be able to do it and have the resources would be the US government if they really decided that they wanted to they would they would they would be the only people with the financial resources to potentially build the supercomputers to hack it so just to go fucking crazy here what you're kind of putting forward is that the US government or also i guess they like to be able to control the internet and they like to be able to control the way that we're interacting with everyone so they don't like the peer to peer or blockchain technologies that's right Okay, so this potentially gives them the framework that they need um, to own a blockchain like uh, to to own a blockchain that people are interfacing on so that I guess their scientists can better understand the inner workings and then possibly disrupt other networks such as Bitcoin. That's right. And because of the effectiveness of this technology, remember, this isn't just something that people are making money wildly on um, at certain points in history. Bitcoin and then later Monero, which is where really everyone moved to um, more recently, these technologies enabled completely brand new kinds of black markets to arise, which were um, promoting safety of the customer and they were um, maintaining the privacy of the shoppers. And um, I think best of all, it was sticking it to the DEA and to the war on drugs in a very big way. And that's why they had to give Ross Ulbricht a double life sentence for doing nothing violent at all. <laughs> and so, you know, and for giving people a way to transact peacefully online. Um, Has this been a long uh, intellectual conversation where the conclusion is you coming out just as pro-drug? <laughs> <laughs> is this just all the punchline was kids do more drugs and you can get it <laughs> online with Monero and that's why, you know, crypto networks are cool? <laughs> I, I would strongly recommend if you are going to engage in the purchase of narcotics, they do so safely using Monero over Tor. <laughs> yes. Uh, but no, that's not the point. It okay. actually... What we're going to do is actually, I think, give a slam dunk defense of Dave Smith's points about uh, 
about the Holocaust, but we'll get to that in a second. The last thing we want to talk about, which is how we get to that conversation, is the most important part uh, of my concerns, which is the identity blockchain that they are building out. This new blockchain, which has all these insidious ideas and does not bring you closer right, to your relationships, but further apart from them. So blockchain actually exists to remove the need for your identity uh, from a transaction. You shouldn't have to know the other party if the goods are going to be transacted and if they will get Bitcoin for those goods. Bill Gates called that a bug, but it's really a feature, I think. I think Bill Gates is the bug. Um, And vaccine passports will require us to inject extremely intimate details about ourselves into our computers, right? And who are the people that own those things? I mean, we're talking about IBM, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Walmart. Um, They're open source programs, these blockchains, but they're being run on these huge companies' networks where we can't access them or audit them. And because of that, they may be open source, but they're not really free software. And when I make that comparison, there's the gratis versus Libre article on Wikipedia. I I encourage you to read it to get the difference. This is a world where the anarchist leftists have a much bigger uh, head start on our, on the software world. But what it means is that the, there's no guarantees in these programs that they can't restrict you. There's no warranty. There's no service agreement. There's no guarantee of privacy or safety. So where in our right minds, do we come up with the idea that this is a good way to deal with the problem of vaccination proof? We have to just look at the stakeholders to really get the answer. There's an enormous number of them, and they have a lot of money between them, and they often deal with one another. Big tech, finance, world governments, education systems, law enforcement, health and pharma, and of course, the military industrial complex. The open source projects that these stakeholders are funding, um, you can see a list of them below, but I'll read a couple off. Uh, there's Amazon, Comcast, CVS Health, uh, Siemens, UBS, State Farm, Microsoft. These aren't like spring chickens, you know. They're. Let me talk about Hyperledger because that's what IBM is backing, and it's the thing that I'm really worried about for the Excelsior Pass. As you can see on the screen, but I'll read it to the uh, listening audience too, Hyperledger describes themselves as an open source community focused on developing frameworks for enterprise-grade blockchain deployment. Does any of that address individual health or anything related right, to individual concerns of people? No. It's a neutral home, they say, for various distributed frameworks, including, and then they list a bunch of their products, But ultimately, it's easy to distill Hyperledger as this. IBM, Microsoft, Intel, and the National Bank of Cambodia, all of which are big Hyperledger stakeholders, they all got together and they made a blockchain during the pandemic and they called it Bakong, I think. Whatever. And I'm not lying. This is is, um, what they trialed the Excelsior Pass on before they gave it to us. Um, The National Bank of Cambodia apparently had uh, no way to do mobile payments and such. And so they took this blockchain uh, and they applied it to the National Bank of Cambodia. Um, And then somehow they were able to turn that into 
a contract for Excelsior Pass. The people who um, did this deal, uh, this contract with Cuomo, they probably didn't even have to explain all of this tech success. Uh, it was probably such a corrupt deal, right, that no one even discussed the adequacy of their approach. When you look at the website for Hyperledger, they literally have a section called special interest groups. I'm not kidding. And when you look at the sectors that they call special interest groups, we deal with healthcare is the first one they list. Then the public sector, social impact, you know what that means. Telecom, trade and finance, and of course, the supply chain. Um, the masks are, are what come to mind immediately. But this all brings me to the Holocaust comparisons. This is very important because I don't want to add to the fire, but I do want to extinguish it because anybody who's saying that it's a non-apt comparison doesn't know about what I'm about to tell you. Um, IBM was a major participant in the Holocaust and was a major technical provider for uh, Hitler's ability to automate the oppression of all of the Jews and other people that got killed. And if you look, uh, I have highlighted on um, the left image that IBM is one of the chosen hyperledger vendors. Uh, they are indeed a participant in this new horrible thing. Um, and when you look further into the history, right, it's kind of easy to conclude that you really shouldn't use technology to segment people based on arbitrary things because it never leads anywhere good. Pictured on this slide, for those who can't see it, um, is an actual IBM device. It's like an early old school punch card computer that the Nazis used to um, categorize and keep track of all of their prisoners and people that they wanted to kill. Uh, you know, there's hev heavily researched information about this. There's been documentaries made about this. IBM's participation in the Holocaust is without question. And so it just really speaks, I think, to the enormity of the situation that we've got yet another attempt at um, automating the analysis of individual human beings using new technology for the time. Um, and, you know, the patterns alone are significant. But then when you look at the actual intent uh, of implementing this technology, what was it for? The Holocaust used uh, the badge of shame, right? The Juden star to actually incentivize people to want to um, uh, comply in order to not have such a bad life. But it didn't really stay there for very long. It immediately led to increasingly horrific things and then led full on to the Holocaust. And, you know, that's why the comparison was wrong, but only because it understates the dangers of today's proposal. The Nazis wouldn't have ever even been able to dream of what's now possible because of this technology build out. And this event now, nor the Holocaust could have ever happened with only the participation of the corporations that are stakeholders in this. It had to involve the initiation of force by government. And that's why we need to very much understand this as a community, as an intellectual community that, the government wants to kill the most successful libertarian technologies ever. And that's what this is all about. We can't fall for it. They've been wanting to do this for years. They tried to do it right after Bitcoin happened, you know, with this, the Pippa and Sopa thing to really lock down people's ability to communicate and to be able to interact peacefully with each other. Now they've done it because the tech companies want out. They want to be able to run their businesses. Disney wants to reopen Disney World. 
So no one's saying no this time. Everybody has been left victim to this. And a lot of people will choose to do what I'm suggesting you don't do, which is do not participate in this. Um, what's possible because of this technology is very dangerous, both for your health and for your mental well-being. If it does not go away, these passport vaccines, these, these vaccine passports, you have to avoid the major cities because compliance will be required to use important public services. You will also, as I said earlier, want to get ready for inflation because blockchains aren't efficient and everyone knows that. The finance firms, as we talked about earlier, will use these costs in a way to try to keep inflation out of the markets and the malinvestments that will be passed down could be horrendous. You also want to work on self-reliance. Just make sure that if anything does fail, because it will fail catastrophically when it does, that you're ready to you know, survive that. And then utilize truly decentralized black markets and avoid the hype beasts. So what I mean by that is buy Monero, not NFTs. If you want to actually save yourself and transact privately and securely on the internet, and you want to do it through an alternative currency, don't use the blockchain built by JP Morgan Chase. Use the one built by free speech open software like Monero. If you like drugs, get Monero. Um, Is um, but, I'm not I'm not familiar with Monero, so um, it, I just give me the short pitch or why like you would take that over like an Ethereum. I, I just did. This is the first time I'm hearing of Monero. My, my knowledge of, of crypto at the moment is essentially that I read the Bitcoin standard. That's it. And I bought some, and luckily I bought some Bitcoin when it was at like, you know, 5k. So I did well with my Bitcoin purchase. Okay. I wish I bought a lot more, uh, but you know, at least I bought some. So give me the pitch on Monero. Well, the problem with Bitcoin actually was that it was the first of its kind. And um, while an amazing step forward, it had many problems. Um, the efficiency is one. The other one, though, is that people said it was anonymous. And to some degree, that was sort of true. But it didn't take long for people to figure out ways to exploit it. And so in theory, the government could have access to a lot of um, people's transactions for maybe what was illegal um, or something to that degree. Monero fixes these problems in um, a very serious way, in, in a way that does not actually hinder efficiency. In fact, it makes it more efficient. Um, and it actually adds a layer of decentralization to the mix because it allows you to hold the entire blockchain um, on your own systems, thereby not relying a central authority to do it for you. And right, so me, it gives let, you more power over the, your money than Bitcoin does. Okay, let me, I think uh, just for the uh, um, sake of the run your mouth listeners, and I want everyone to, CPU God came out to my Philadelphia show. He's now been on the show twice with incredible insights. This is his third time coming in with the fucking power pack presentation. The last time someone pitched a crypto on my show, I started getting emails saying that the person worked for that company. Oh, no, so no, just, no. Just for the sake I'm of not- people knowing that you're legitimately like, hey, I'm just recommending Monero. I assume that you're not you're not like the wizard behind that crypto and you're trying to get the run your mouthers to buy in. I don't have a PhD in mathematics. <laughs> I cannot write that stuff. Believe me, all I am is interested in protecting people. There you go. See, everyone listening, you got the honest pitch that uh, Monero's a worthwhile uh, crypto. I'm going to have to do some. Uh, I've been wanting to buy my Dogecoin. I've been wanting to buy it, and I've just been lazy. It was up like 30% today just off of nonsense. And uh, I, okay. But, anyways, well, let's. So, uh, 
can I just yeah. say about Elon Musk and all that? Because this is the other thing I think you guys all need to be aware of. Anyone that's listening, watching, there's been an unprecedented amount of interest in blockchains, especially Bitcoin and things like this. And I think that the introduction of these Excelsior passes gives some indication as to why companies like Square and Tesla have a huge interest in the blockchain and in owning cryptocurrency. Um, they may, in fact, be part of this grift. And um, oh, we because have to realize that, right? Because right. they got us all ready. These NFTs, another way to build trust into an alternative uh, blockchain that could very well just erode our liberties and uh, make life worse for us all. Wow. You, you, can I tell you something? I wish I didn't ask so many questions at the beginning because you had a power packed ending here. You got into Nazi stuff, talking about <laughs> IBM and like technology. So uh, I apologize to run your mouth listeners for all my uh, crazy inputs, but let's, um, are there more slides? I, I don't know. That's I it. think that's it. Right, we, so, this, this nightmare is over. <laughs> no, no, this was, this was great and amazingly insightful, but let's, uh, let's button it up. So, yes, yes. So can I say then the please, thing yes. that I would want to stress is that we have a limited time uh, to deal with this. There have been other opportunities um, to do this and we have successfully fought them. There is not the current infrastructure in place, socially, politically, nothing. No one's interested in directly headbutting this problem like uh, happened last time with SOPA and PIPA. So I encourage everybody who's worried about this to simply talk about it with everyone you know, because we have very few opportunities, most of us these days, to get in front of other people. But if you're going to be in front of other people, I recommend that you have a dialogue with others about this. I think what you'll find is that a lot of people already very much agree with all of these points and from all different persuasions and political backgrounds. It's a thing that everyone just knows is wrong and bad. And there's only a contingency of COVIDiots and other people who just enjoy this lifestyle that it imposes on us they're the ones defending it for purely selfish reasons it's interesting because uh last night i was just in an open mic and uh i That's had great. yeah it was it, 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 I'm, I'm happy to be trying to work on stuff and i'm really trying to get some uh new material together for the summer because i got some i got some fun gigs that like i'm really looking forward to do but i actually need some material that works um <laughs> i anyways i i was curious to know some of the other comics in Typically, I do find other I, I find I'm making generalizations here. I find that most comics skew a little bit more left than I do. But without your rare in New York, they can be a little bit douchier leftists and not listening. I find that comics are kind of critical thinkers. And so, like, they're actually willing to have a conversation with you. And there's actually some insight there. Now, that I'm not that's not always true. And it's a little bit less true with certain classes of comedian comedians in New York. Not all of them. But anyways, I show up to the open mic last night. There's a couple of guys in Connecticut now I'm friendly with. And I was just at, I was like out of curiosity and you guys getting in the vaccine. They're like, no. And I'm like, oh, okay, why? And like, none of them are, I don't think any of them are libertarians. I would doubt that they're even like Republicans, but they're just like, I'm creeped out by it. And then I started mentioning, have, what have you guys heard about the COVID? Like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, they might. And, and like, they were like, holy shit, I haven't heard about. Like, they were just like level 10 spooked. And it was before I even gave them the D it was just, they might require proof of the fact, like, you know what I mean? They were just spooked by that. So I think you're right that people are somewhat like, except for the people that feel like, oh, there's death out there and government's trying to save us from death. And here's a solution for us to be able to get back to life. There are those individuals. Um, and then I guess the comics who are the people I'm hanging out with who are out doing open mics now kind of realize 
no, I got to be living my life and this thing's been stupid. So they, they, you know, they don't fall into the same, they don't think the same risk is on their plate unless government comes in with this tech solution. So they're a little bit more open to yours and I's perspective. So for people- Same with the music people too. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. I'm not world, surprised by that. It's the same thing. You have a very close relationship with your audience, right? Comics and people who perform on stage, they're, they're directly in front of the people that want to see them. And they had- all sorts of barriers imposed in front of that relationship. So they intrinsically, I think, feel. Right. And have and we understand it. Like problem. you took something. Um, yeah. So to give some people, cause obviously I, I think uh, you made some extremely compelling points here and we just got the really in-depth view, but I think for most people, if they kind of go sit down with their mom tomorrow and they try and go, Hey, covert passports are bad. Um, some of this is going to get lost in translation. So what would you say, and I'll give it to you first. If you someone was going to make the one minute argument, the one minute pitch for here's why this is a terrible idea, what would you what would you give them as kind of the argument to walk away with? Well, I would say just try to reframe it. You know, say, um, would you um, support this if it was uh, to report STDs before you hooked up with someone new, or you know, try to um, strike the chord because everybody's got a passion. Some you're saying, something you're saying the person's mom is a real whore. <laughs> <laughs> she's walking uh, around with a ton of STDs trying to hook up with dudes. And you know that your mom's going to know like, <laughs> hell no, I don't want no one knowing about these herbs. <laughs> I guess that's a bad thing for your mom. But, um, you know, it could even be like, you know, diet restraint, anything like that. Like, you know, do you want to, everybody's got something that they don't want out there and that they disagree with. And um, I don't think it's in anyone's interest or ethically even very nice or responsible to uh, put people in situations where they have to, struggle between like what's best for their well-being and uh what's best for i guess um people's general right it's like if you know a guy like who likes eating cheeseburgers do you want to live in a world where you have to where you potentially have to report to government that you're consuming this at the hour that you're i don't know if that example is great we're an hour and a half in i'll have to give this more thought what you can never get rid of that evidence in those records and they can be used, um, you know, to antagonize you for the rest of your life. And so if it's not a good thing in that circumstance, there's really no circumstance under which it would be an appropriate way to store and communicate your medical history with people. Right. Right. You know what, um, along those lines, uh, what might help us build out that argument is I've heard some horror stories in regards to like the 23andMe, the DNA registry and the FBI, like forcibly right. taking that data from them. Um, and, but the idea just being here that the collection of data on you, you know, could be like, I don't know, it could be your life insurance policy doesn't have to pay you out because they've got a record of you doing the following reckless activities and they go, this was outside the scope of what we were trying to insure you for. I don't know that that's the application, but I, I think to your point, people want to live a life of privacy, and this is definitely down a dark road um, that potentially really removes any any aspect of it. Yeah, I think maybe the best way to close on this and to really give that one minute pitch is just to uh, explain to people that, you know, it didn't look that, you know, it looked pretty innocent when I guess Hitler wanted to buy a bunch of punch card machines, right? It didn't look like he was trying to exterminate an entire race of people, but uh you know, things and how they look now, you know, this is big tech's world. This is what they do. They bait and switch you. They tell you it's safe to put your internet, your info online. And then cyber stalking starts to happen. And Facebook is saying they're going, oh my God, what a nightmare. We had no idea. 
I mean, they knew. And so, you know, if we're going to keep falling for these things again and again, then there's no stopping this. But if we see the pattern and we stop it now, we can prevent a lot of other suffering. And I think, you know, if people want to do a sort of way to gain entry into a space with vaccine evidence, let's think of a better way. Let's not subject the whole world to this torture. Hell yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing this with us. Um, I, I mean this, I think it would be worthwhile for you to um, put to get, like make this presentation without my interruptions and put it out online. I'd be happy to uh, promote the fact that it exists. Um, now, I think that this was, I learned a lot and I think that this was awesome. You know, the audience is going to have learned a lot and enjoy it. But I think, uh, I think there's also some space for you to give this straight, the straight pitch and you've already got the presentation put together. I wish I had better answers uh, for some of the solutions, but um, that's for next time, maybe. All right. Awesome. Seriously, uh, thanks so much. And you're still out in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, but I'm moving to Nashville pretty soon. So, Hell yeah. What, yeah. Uh, Come on down sometime. Awesome. Dude, at some point I'll be down there and uh, we'll eat some fried chicken. I know they got the, the good Nashville chicken. I don't really eat that much fried chicken anymore, but I've been wanting to visit Nashville. So uh, we'll do it, dude. Summer Porch Tour 2022. Righteous. All right. Well, when, next uh, when are you moving to Nashville? Uh, next week. Fuck yeah. Very cool. All right. Later, dude. Take it easy. Peace. Thank you to CPU God for all of the uh, fantastic insights. And now I'm turning over the show to Et Pavel Trades, who has some insight uh, for us on how NFTs work. And as everything goes to shit, you want to put all of your money into crypto. And you know where else you want to put it into? Kratom. That's right. Go to YoKratom.com, home of the $6 kilo. If this conversation has creeped you out about what's going on in the world, get the one thing that's going to calm you down. And you don't have to worry about your stash running out because you buy a whole kilo of it. How often are you buying a whole kilo of something? Usually, you get yourself a stash of something because you're over the age of 21 and you're going to use it responsibly because uh, you're already a fan of this product. But if all those conditions are met... You want to stay calm, you want to enjoy yourself some Kratom in the evening, and you want to make sure that you've got a supply that's going to last so that as everything comes down, the whole world falls apart, you're not walking around looking for kilo, you like, I stacked up on Kratoms of this, I mean, kilos of this stuff. I, I stacked up on kilos of Kratom for just 60 bucks. So go to YoKratom.com, home of the $6 kilo, and now let's have a conversation with the crypto magic man at Pavel Trades. And this is the guest of guests because he's here to sell you on NFTs. We've been bashing it. We've been saying why they're bullshit. We're saying why it's a load of crock, why, uh, you know, put your money into sandwiches, keep it out of the NFT game. But then I was hit up by a listener of the show at Pavel Trades. That's the that's the handle, I believe. Uh, and he's here to give you the pitch. He's got some NFTs he wants to sell. And so welcome to the show. We're uh, happy to have you here. Thank you, Robbie. I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's, it's an honor to uh, be in your presence. All right. So most people, myself included, have been looking at the uh, NFTs and just being like, this looks like absolute nonsense. But you, you're in the, right. you're real, you're balls deep in the crypto space. You're trading it backwards, forwards, profiting off of everything. And uh, you like it. You like the NFTs. So give us the pitch. Yes. Well, okay. So NFTs in their current form are definitely in their primordial state. Uh, this whole craze right now is definitely a bubble uh, with art. That's not where I think NFTs are going to really have their value. Um, what they're going to really have, like, and you mentioned this on the most recent podcast where you were, you know, you weren't bashing them. You did mention that they do, did have value. And this is actually where they will have value is sort of uh, attaching to the real world is whenever they represent a real world asset. Uh, but also uh, it's representing digital assets as well. 
and uh, connecting those to smart contracts that can then be self-executed on any blockchain. And that's sounds, I mean, really nerdy. Like when you say it right now, a lot of people don't understand what that is, but uh, so I'll, I'll just kind of break it down. So, you know, obviously, you know, an NFT represents a, you know, real world or digital item on a blockchain. And why that's important is because you can now tokenize really anything things that couldn't have been sold before on a digital marketplace now can and there's not a lot of examples of this this is actually the first uh time anybody's ever done this with property but recently there was a guy in st louis he uh he rent he leases out properties and he sold a quarter of a percent of one property in the form of an nft so whoever bought that nft gets a quarter percent of the income from that rental property now and that alone you know is really interesting that that's happening uh but i digress i continue uh so the, the way that that uh really like why it's important is that that like this with smart contracts is that they are built on ethereum or you know other cryptocurrencies that support smart smart contracts but ethereum is the number two cryptocurrency in terms of valuation right behind bitcoin um the what makes like these nfts like allowed to be like done for so many different things like whether it's art or real estate or even entertainment or collectible purposes is that they're programmable through these smart contracts uh ethereum is designed to be a programmable open source um cryptocurrency where you can like i said you can tokenize now through nfts anything before it was in 20 like we said we saw like we saw in 2017 so just to, just to take a step back when a guy sells his fart as an nft and he makes 80 dollars for it which is ridiculous yeah. but what you're actually saying is it's almost proof of concept of the fact that now there's a way that anybody you can literally monetize you can monetize a fart now buying yes. a fart for 80 dollars is fucking retarded nobody Absolutely. that doesn't that does not make sense or even buying digital art for 69 million dollars also probably doesn't make sense and there's probably some fraud in that market or some sort of attacks, something going on. I, I don't know exactly what the play is where there's art that's going for $69 million. But let's just say proof of concept is that there's now a framework where any financial transaction can take place over um, a smart contract. And so now you got to tell me, so what's the financial, like what's, what's the big benefit that, that brings to humanity? Like what has changed like from a week ago that now I can digitalize anything and sell that as a contract? What's like, what, you know, how does that push us forward? Uh, well, now you don't necessarily need a lawyer or a lot of these other middlemen, whether it be, you know, financial institutions or ins now we're getting also slowly uh, insurance is also a sector that's being decentralized uh, also in its infancy as well, uh, like NFTs. Um, but uh, what's really driving the sector is that these smart contracts can connect to any blockchain or now any off-chain resource through oracles. The oracle problem, which was an issue for blockchains for years uh, with them being centralized, meaning that so every blockchain has what's called an oracle, which fetches any off-chain data. The problem is every Oracle on every blockchain is centralized and it can only draw from one data source. So now we have various Oracle providers 
that are able to through decentralized a decentralized network of oracles where various individuals or businesses provide those question and this is this is my i guess lack of uh this is my stupidity but i'll put it to you so that you can educate myself on the fan base at the end of the day i guess if i just want to be able to have a record of transactions like I understand for Bitcoin, why specifically Bitcoin, the decentralization makes sense. Once you have a product like Ethereum, which is not, it, it, from what I understand, does not have like that, that, that perfect code. And that was like the thing, was it with Ethereum or Ripple where like at one point there was the hack and then they went back and corrected it. I don't know. That, that was Ethereum. That was Ethereum. Yeah. Which is Ethereum and Ethereum classic. Right. Which is one of the, I guess if you're a purist is kind of the complaint with that is that it's not, it's not like this perfect decentralized thing. Cause there is a governing body that I guess can go in and make corrections. So I'll just put it to you um, to explain to like the fans at the end of the day, if there's value to someone being able to monetize their fart and sell it, which we haven't quite explained what the financial benefit is to all of humanity and being able to, to, to do such activities, but why, if we're if we're saying that's good, what's the importance of that being able to be done in a decentralized fashion? Because now, like now, we don't necessarily require a lot of middlemen. Like for example, with insurance, you're starting to see decentralized insurance become a thing. Not I mean not as widely adopted as I or you or anyone else you know in the space would like to see, or an interest in decentralization would like to see. But now you're having crop insurance available on the blockchain. You're having life insurance on the blockchain you're having various what is life insurance on the block does that like as as simple as let's just say I, all right at the moment like you know for me getting life insurance i'd have to go to whatever mutual life whatever they got their actuaries and they're giving me insurance their sales guy gets paid whatever the fuck they do with i, I don't know but I guess what you're saying is we can almost cut that out where I could like put up my stats on the blockchain or not the, really like on Ethereum and go, who wants yeah. to insure this? Now, 100 private investors can go almost bet against me, like in how long I'm going to live yes. and almost like take the opposite side in that contract, which um, it, the insurance application is just one application. But it just kind of like if you just start thinking about like finance and the high mind and everybody working on different things. So then you can almost have, it's weird starting to look at people's health or life as a casino where people can just take like the opposite side of that. I, I mean, that's not, that, that's not the pooling risk approach. I mean, it is, you're, right. you're still, you still are pooling risk. It's just, if I was the politician trying to say, this is why this is terrible, I would paint it as, look, there's some guy on the other side that's betting against your health and betting against having to pay out your health. And now he doesn't like you're taking, but that's, that's insurance works in a similar capacity. It's just easy to demonize this. Anyways, I'm podcasting a really long time tonight. So I'm a little bit uh, more scatterbrained than usual. You're so I'll fine. put it back. I'll put it back to you. So let's start starting point, decentralized networks benefit. Let's just, let's, let's establish that. Forget the NFTs yeah. for a second. Um, and the smart contracts, let's just lay out for the fans. Why in your opinion, decentralized um, financial networks are a benefit? Well, because they reduce a lot of, well, for one, they reduce fees ultimately. Right now, uh, blockchain fees are unfortunately higher than I would like them to be, or most people would like them to be. Over time, I think that's going to be fixed as various platforms 
you know, go through various upgrades. Like right now, Ethereum is going through the process of upgrading from Ethereum 1.0 to Ethereum 2.0. That's a very big deal right now. They're going from a proof of work to a proof of stake, uh, which I could get into that, but I don't think anybody really wants to hear. Uh, but also it sort of allows you more autonomy than in the current system and allows more people to compete for your dollar or your satoshi in this case your you know your sat which is one one millionth of a bitcoin you know that's what we call oh so yeah. also kind of what you're what you're saying is at the moment if i've got a dollar for the most part i store in a bank and i get zero returns on it um if all of a sudden i go to this more decentralized landscape where maybe people actually have better uses for the capital than the bank which the bank might go issue loans but they're not really cutting me in on those profits but like you at Pavel Trades, let's say you've got a really good usage of capital. Um, so in the crypto world where we're cutting out kind of all these middlemen, there might there's more of an opportunity for me to actually give you my money and based like a, a kind of a lending type situation and actually seeing a return on it. Um, it I don't know. Is that kind of one of the benefits you're getting at? No, that's literally one of the benefits I'm getting at. That's actually okay. one of that's one of the leading things. That was a huge deal uh, this past summer with a lot of these yield farming projects. There was a lot. It was it's called it's DeFi. It's decentralized finance. It's a whole sector of crypto. It's really huge. Everyone that's listening needs to go look into that. You know, it, it's it's amazing. Uh, but anyways, so last summer, you know, you had projects like urine.finance uh, and a lot of these other ones, they just exploded uh, because they were allowing people to essentially, you know, expose themselves to risk on the blockchain and provide like liquidity for people, you know, through various ventures uh, that they otherwise wouldn't be able to through traditional lending means. And it, it was, it, it's really amazing to see that. Now, I would just yeah. think to me, if there was any ever a marketplace that was ripe for scams, particularly in saying, Hey, I'll give you 8% returns oh. on lending me money for a week, or just talk about fucking pyramid schemes, things not quite being like, like at the end of the day, I mean, even like take a Bernie Madoff type person, the greatest Ponzi scheme outside of the United States government. Right. But like yes. even him. So you've got, networks of traditional things that should have been auditing or should have been able to catch that. I would think that he, he still exists. You talk about some like crypto thing that's telling me, Hey, you can be your own federal reserve if you buy into this and you know, you're going to be building out this thing. Like, sure. I, my, my thought is yes. I guess if I put in early and take out early, maybe I'll be one of the guys who's walking mm -hmm. away with my money, but no, do I really think that there's, you know, a lot of people like you that are really finding good allocations with that capital I mean, maybe I don't really have the time to sit down and do my homework to ensure that. Right. So I would think that while it's a promising sales pitch of, listen, there's all these people that have really good allocations for your capital within the crypto space, and they're willing to pay out high returns because they can't get traditional financing. Great sales pitch. There, I just swung it. Hire me. I'll go tell that right. to people. <laughs> right. The reality is there's nothing in the world that seems more ripe for scams than the then the crypto space and these kind of uh promises of you know eight to ten percent returns on your oh. money which doesn't exist in any secure asset oh, oh it, it's it, it far exceeds eight or ten percent it is eight thousand to ten thousand percent well that's APY. if you're invested in a, in a crypto that's not if you're oh, lending to no, someone no 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 that is that was the actual promised api in some of these contracts for some of these actual I mean, how, so products. how does that possibly exist? How does it possibly exist? Because, it's a, because, it, because it is the wild west of finance. It is a 
in this, it is a literal free market of finance. Literally, if you want. So, like, okay. But and now, yeah. now we're getting a little crazy. So what you're telling me is that it's not so much the amount of risk that you're taking that if you're lending to the U.S. government, you're getting, what is it, two, maybe 3% on a long-term loan, whatever the hell yeah. it is. So it's not that lending to someone in the crypto space is actually riskier. It's that when you there's free freedom of movement in capital markets, there's actually 8,000% 8, return. That's that's a ridiculous proposition. Oh, well, no, well yeah, so they were real, it was real, but that's the thing. A lot of these times, these projects then either exit scams you know, because they were truly a scam or they just collapsed because it was truly unsustainable because that type of yield is even in crypto, which can happen from holding long term in some cases or even trading. Sometimes that's not realistically a long shot, like eight, 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 like that. That it's just it's not realistic. And, you know, a lot of these. OK, so yeah. I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to trip you up on some random. Yeah. Things. So let, let's take a couple no. steps back here because we're trying to make just, the, the positive. No, I'm, sorry, I'm, just, I'm just remembering because it's like, oh, man, it just. Yeah. But also there's some you have some really cool things going on, too. Uh, you know, like I, like I said, beyond insurance, you have also, you know, like, like I said, people allow now like are able to have capital that otherwise wouldn't have been able to before. You know, like like I said, like with through NFTs now, a lot of people that otherwise actually, you know, like not artists necessarily, but through entertainment, they now can release content on the blockchain, you know, that way, you know, that way they can truly, you know, people that want to support them, like as a content producer, not necessarily an artist, and they can now have something that they own that may, might be truly exclusive and irreplicable, irreplic sorry, uh, we got a little tripped up there. And right, that so can be that yeah. that that part only makes sense to me is um if you in some ways have a rev share like for example yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying like if you yeah. if you like say like if like like uh what is it like Patreon like it's will it be like the ultimate level of like a Patreon subscription to somebody right so and the difference it, it, yeah this is the difference if I say I'm putting out an episode of the Run Your Mouth podcast I retain exclusive ownership of the Run Your Mouth podcast but you get the one token that exists against that run your mouth podcast. I think you and I both agree that token is virtually useless because yes, it, yes there is one single token and it's tied to one thing. It's not, it's not anything. But what would be a value is if I say, Hey, I'm giving you a token against this episode of the run your mouth podcast. And now you have 50% ownership of that actual show. And so let's say in the future, this isn't happening, but let's say in the future, CNN buys out the Run Your Mouth podcast and they all want to purchase the entire archive, then you're going to get half of the profits of this archive. Or let's say I take a clip from this. Ep this is more likely. I take a clip from the episode. I, I, I hire a producer. This is this is not a crazy theoretical. Let's just uh, Tim Dillon's more talented than me. It, Tim Dillon's a really funny guy. Tim Dillon makes a lot of money doing this. Great for Tim Dillon. I'm using this as a theoretical no one busts my balls that I'm being haughty or anything else. I love Tim Dillon. Really funny guy. I also know Tim Dillon before he was making a shit ton of money on his podcast. As a theoretical, you could have invested in Tim Dillon before he became a guy who was making a ton of money on his podcast. And you could have even invested in his back archive. His back archive, which is not something he's done, but you could be cutting up clips and then putting it out on like his Instagram now. 
you put it out on his Instagram now at a hundred thousand impressions and he's good at selling sponsors, all of a sudden that could be a clip that's making a thousand dollars. So if you were to invest in his back catalog, there is a monetary value there because there is potential like you almost got to realize, like if I was Seinfeld, which I'm not, and Seinfeld made all the money in the world, so he doesn't need to do this. But I'm almost, I'm almost surprised, like if you look at the way it used to be, the reason why people bought up his old episodes and like they played on, you know, TBS on repeat is because you could put up commercials against it. Think about how much infinitely more you could be doing that right now of cutting up one minute clips of Seinfeld, putting them on Instagram with the sponsor at the end. You could be doing like nearly endless syndication of your own content via social media anyways look at me now now i'm now uh, the sales so invest in invest and run your mouth i'm putting up the nft and the point is it might not be worth right now but i will give you a chance uh to take part in future revenue and i am the person who knows how to sell sponsorship on content so you will own the content with me you give me your money now and if in the future i sell advertisers against it on the re-release, like this very moment, this very moment will be the first NFT I put up. And if it becomes <laughs> as worth money, 50% rev share at Pavel Trades, will you help me create this NFT and put it on the market by Monday? 1,000%. 1, <laughs> I, I think I think the yield on this is greater than any existing cryptocurrency, <laughs> even my even my favorite ones that I'm invested in. No, so, but I think that's the um, the point with the NFT, which is what I was making is like, if I own a Lamborghini and I say I'm keeping the Lamborghini, but you can have the digital token that's represented by this Lamborghini, um, that that to me is just ridiculous. That that, that does not make right. sense. And even with the digital art thing, it doesn't yeah. make a ton of sense because to me, digital art, like at least with the painting, there was an original version and you, you, you can duplicate the original version. It's never the original. If when it comes to digital art, if I'm replicating digital art, it is the equivalent of the original. It might not be the first one, but like it is, you know what I mean? It, it, right. There's no, it, it's digital. It's like, can I, yes. Yeah. Can I interject on the Ferrari bit? The, the thing is though, now that like that Ferrari though, like maybe not, you may not necessarily want to sell that Ferrari, like NFT. However, you may mint that NFT. Like it, like for example, you may mint a, like, you know, your, 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 uh, what your deed for your Ferrari. And now you want to insure your Ferrari uh, using decentralized insurance through that NFT using a smart contract, you could then connect it to one of those decentralized insurance providers, as opposed to say going to Geico or Allstate or one of these other leading, you know, centralized traditional insurance providers. And you could then at a whim, that's probably like necessarily like change providers to someone who offers you a better insurance product on your Lamborghini. Right. Hypothetically. But that wouldn't... That's, 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 that's once we have more adoption, but like, I'm just saying like, you know, like once we get there, that's what like NFTs offer for people is like they, they allow real world items to then have access to these digital marketplaces that they otherwise wouldn't play. Right. Wouldn't but that's be. not an argument yeah. for why the, the deed represented by the physical Lamborghini would have financial value to somebody else. Well, it would because it actually represents the Ferrari. It represents the it, rep, it represents it. So let me let me ask the question it would, differently. It would, it, would have, it would have value. I get I get that this yeah. is uh, lawyerly of me, but I'm gonna ask you just to see if we're on the same yeah. page or not. If you yeah. have a deed that is not represented by the physical like asset, yeah. it's separate from the physical asset. To well, you, you have does both. That have value. Okay, can you repeat the quote? I'm. I get I got, a lamb. I get a Lamborghini. Yeah. Yes. And I say, hey, there's one, I'm making an NFT represented by this, by this Lamborghini. I keep the Lamborghini. I have yes. full ownership of the Lamborghini. 
you own the digital certificate that exists in conjunction with this Lamborghini. Does that yeah. to you, does that digital certificate have value? Yes. Why? Absolutely. Because, yeah. Because that is essential. That's that, that is a digital certificate of ownership that it's on the blockchain. That is as good as any paper document. But That's you can't how show, but, yeah. but you can't show up and take the car. I didn't sell you the car. I just sold you a limited certificate that uh, I'm only creating one in conjunction with this card. It's like, uh, oh, if it wasn't okay, yeah, oh, just on its own. No, if it wasn't connected to a smart contract that actually was tied to a transaction. You know what? I'll tell you yeah. what I'm describing is essentially yeah. when when you get no a, the token, yeah. When the token get, on like, its own is useless, but if once, right. once it's connected to a smart contract that's connected to these other things on blockchain, it becomes valuable is what right. I'm trying it's to almost, say. It, it's almost yeah. like if I got a signed Lou Gehrig baseball bat and there's a certificate that comes with the bat to say that it's a signed Lou Gehrig baseball bat. Now I can go to an expert without that piece of paper and get it verified and the baseball bat would be of value, right? So right. if I sell you just the piece of paper that validates that this other thing is signed you and I would both agree that piece of paper doesn't really have any value unless it's attached to the bat. So we're on the same page here right. that the NFT well, has value when it's attached to a physical object or yes. a service or something of value. The actual NFT not tied to anything doesn't, it, 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 it's nothing. That's true. But that person that does have that item and they know it's that item, they could seek out that certificate of authentic authenticity from the person who owns the digital version of it. So to someone, well, I know like it's not widespread value. It's still, I mean, I'm, I'm probably getting autistic with all this. I and mean, this is all very autistic, like bullshit. Let's be honest. It's all, it's all hyper, it's hyper weaponized uh, autism against centralized systems. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that there definitely is, you know, it, it, it's going to okay, be so a transition. Yeah. Let's backtrack yeah, and just give the, yeah. the, the big picture. We're going to wrap it up here, but let's give people the big picture yeah. pitch. And so I'll throw it to you for one minute answers on each of these. So let's just start with advantage of a decentralized network. Uh, you have incentive to keep the network, you know, active and fair. Whereas with centralized networks, you end up with a power imbalance of people at the top. Whereas when it's decentralized, it's more, uh, I get it. As it goes yeah, through a meritocracy, it's a meritocracy. Right. More as, it, as it goes through yeah. a funnel, the people that can like kind of access the choke points are able to just, like remove some some value and some money from it if it's decentralized no one person can kind of get access to the honeypot and so therefore like there's less just value um kind of sucked out of it all right fair enough now nfts so nfts are we now have a digital ability through decentralized networks for anybody to basically engage in a contract with anybody else so first let's just explain what the value of that is and so i guess it's just well I'll, i'll throw it to you the one minute answer, what's the what's the advantage that you can now create a digital contract on a decentralized network with anyone in the world over any asset or service? Because it opens the door up to competition for it opens the door to literally anybody to enter a marketplace. The barriers to entry now, like I mentioned earlier, like I'm gonna use insurance because that's the one that I'm most you know interested in that's up and coming besides finance. Or actually we will use finance as another one because now you have finance, you have more lending, you now have decentralized derivatives platforms where you don't have to, you now if for example you wouldn't have the gamestop situation if it was on a decentralized derivatives exchange uh because you wouldn't be able to truly halt trading because the 
uh, like decentral through like through decentralization, the network would not allow it. The network like it's baked into the protocol also because it's it's all built on math. It it has to execute the way it's it's built to, and you will also have a lot of other disruptive things. Like it's gonna it's also going to remove, in my opinion, this was you know kind of a libertarian thing. It's it's going to take away a lot of the powers that the cathedral has because you know like i mentioned earlier with decentralization you have these choke points that the powers that be have it's going to make it harder for them to control them it's going to allow people to circumvent you know not necessarily you know i think the state as much but more so uh current corporations and you know the whole banking industrial complex got it so now in terms of the, I guess the, the money-making opportunities with NFT. So one of them that would come to mind is whoever, like, obviously lawyers are fucking crazy expensive. Um, now I would think though, in the NFT space, maybe you got some sort of a NFT law firm that as opposed to going to see a lawyer in person, thousand dollars an hour or whatever for a contract, maybe now there's people in India putting together NFT contracts for like, you know, 15 bucks an hour and they're legally sound and these things are pretty good. And like you said, you know, maybe for selling a house over this digital contract, you're cutting out banks, brokers, whatever other licensing laws of people that manage to get their hands in on the transaction. Um, so what are kind of the new services that are coming up that are kind of worth looking out for? Uh, you have, de like, like I mentioned earlier, you have decentralized uh, lending that's a big deal now is really like the most popular way right now is to lend cryptocurrency. However, you do have stable coins, uh, which are tied to either us dollar or British pounds or euros, or, you know, there's also a gold stable coin as well, PAX gold. Uh, but, uh, they are able to, what's really up and coming in the space is the, like I mentioned, actually, really, I meant to touch on earlier was in, is insurance. That's actually the big area right now after finance. Uh, there's a project that I'm interested in. It's called Ether Etheris DIP. Uh, the DIP stands for Decentralized Insurance Protocol. Uh, I really like them a lot because they are partnered with Chainlink, which is you know the like I mentioned earlier, the Oracle uh, provider. So that like that's the data infrastructure for all these smart contracts and the you know NFTs and you know, the uh, variable NFTs, the which allows them to be edited, which like, I, I didn't touch on this earlier, but like, say you had, you know, real estate contract, and, you know, it's, the, you know, an NFT that basically like that represents part ownership of a home that, you know, has is tied to real estate value, that information that's fed to it, it, it could, it could change. And I'm, really heavily invested in the infrastructure of that and i i'm really into oracles like Chainlink. that's the area that i'm into uh oracles i think like in 2017 just just real quick last thing uh 2017 i think you know smart contract platforms like ethereum which is what allowed nfts to become a thing are gonna have you know they had really great price action and i think you know this year like this site this cycle because you know every four years we have a cycle you can look in the bitcoin cycle and the crypto cycle uh but i think Oracles, especially Chainlink, are going to have you know a great, great year, great remaining. So what's what's the investment? How do we make the money? I'm Jewish. Yeah. Tell me, who, uh, who, where should we throw it? All into Oracles? Is there an Oracle.com? Uh, uh, there's well, you can go to Chain.link. Uh, that's another one. That's what I'm heavily invested in. Is mostly you know 
is Chainlink. That's what I'm really, uh, really into. They disclaimer: the World Economic Forum likes them a lot. Which uh, actually, to get into this a little bit, just touching on this, they uh, the technology for you know these smart contracts and NFTs. It could be used for a uh, blockchain-based COVID passport, which is kind of scary. We just uh, yeah. I just did a hour and a half episode about how that is a horrible perversion of uh of blockchain technology so i guess uh cpu god isn't the only one who's calling attention to that yeah it's it's kind of becoming more known that it's an issue it's crypto is you know kind of like the internet i think they're you know like darpa had a hand in the internet i think there's probably some some something a little shady with bitcoins toshi and you know but you know like the internet it's a it's a double-edged sword you know they can monitor us and they can sort of keep track of us but at the same time we can also connect and organize and sort of fight back and you know counterattack. god i think that's and blockchain's my deal one of the uh i guess arguments i've heard for um ethereum being a good investment is that bitcoin because it's inefficient, you're not really going to see as much NFTs being built off of it. But with the Ethereum, you do have the potential for, I guess, all the NFTs to transact in it, which um, I guess the same way U.S. dollar uh, has like the, the part of what gives the U.S. dollar like value is at a minimum, I can pay my taxes in it. So it's built in that someone will accept my U.S. dollar. So I guess if NFTs are specifically priced in Ethereum and there's demand for these kind of contracts because they're easier, right? Then there's, I guess, more of a demand for the actual Ethereum currency. Right. But do I have that? Do I have that accurate, or is that totally? No, that, that that's completely accurate. Yeah, because you're transacting as you know in Ether, because that that's the layer that these contracts are built on. You know, so that's definitely one of the reasons that it has value. And 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 I guess on paper, similar to Bitcoin, your institutional players aren't there yet. And this isn't widely adopted, so you can still kind of get an earlier where you think the Ethereum play is kind of played out and you'd be scary if scared scared to throw your money in like tomorrow if you had never bought any. Oh no, I so I I think that we're not gonna see like so like I mentioned earlier, like crypto goes through cycles, and I think we're not gonna see the top of the cycle till end of this year, beginning of next year. Although we could be seeing because of hyperinflation, we could be seeing hyper Bitcoinization. Uh, but I do think that Ethereum is actually a better play for this cycle than Bitcoin is. I think that, you know, Bitcoin can maybe four or five times, maybe go a little more higher from here. Uh, but I could see Ethereum going over 20,000. It's, it's under 2000 as of the time we're recording this. I think it's about 1950. I don't know the exact price, uh, you know, but I think that Ethereum is a great play. I think that anything, uh, I think NF, there's some decent NFT plays out there. Um, like Sand is an interesting one. That's one that I'm into recently. That's a, it's a blockchain based. What's your like take? Uh, yeah. our, our last guest um, yeah. was uh, big into Monero. Is that one that you like or? Monero is okay. Uh, I, I think that pri- like an actual privacy coin itself is not really the future. I I prefer Ren. It's a it's a privacy uh, network that's secured by tokens. So instead of like instead of like converting, say your Bitcoin to Monero, so you can have a completely private transaction, you instead send it to what's called a dark node, which is what 
they run the Ren network. It like kind of washes it. Yes, exactly. And so you get washed Bitcoin back to the, the person that you're saying. Which to, I but, believe some of the yeah. lending exists for washing purposes that you can lend yes. your money basically to a washer so that it comes out the other end, you know, all mixed up. They can't track whose Bitcoin was whose. And then you can take it off network and actually have your uh, your little private currency with, uh, you know, no one tracking it. Yeah. And, the, and those nodes, then they get a small portion of it as a fee. And then, you know, that those fees that add up over time. And then those stakeholders uh, that have tokens, the REN tokens uh, that run those dark nodes, then get paid, you know, according to however many tokens they have staked. In, right. If in I wasn't so lazy, I'd actually do uh, more reading on that because uh, my, my my crypto is the Bitcoin that I purchased that's just sitting in a Coinbase yeah. account, which might as well just be like, hey, government, you know, take, yeah. you can have this. It's it, it's sitting here. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to use a, a like more centralized normie exchange, use Gemini. That's a better one, in my opinion. I mean, they have less coins, but I mean, if you're just wanting to invest, I think they have a better long-term holding selection than coinbase does because they coinbase has a lot of shit coins like to be honest dogecoin no. you buying uh i mean i'll trade it but uh i wouldn't i mean it's probably going to go up with everything but that's not that's not a long-term hold my long-term holds are personally my, my recommend to everybody you know obviously bitcoin's king ethereum's great Chainlink, uh, i love Chainlink. You know, mentioned dip dips great rens awesome i love recently i've been really into bnt which is you know that's awesome like that's a, that's a that's a whole that's hard to explain that one that's your it's a dex it's relied to dex tokens you most people wouldn't get it uh and then synthetics i'm a big fan of as well that's a decentralized derivatives exchange so those are what i hold at the moment so yeah but i i trade a lot of other uh coins so if anybody goes and follows me you know i don't tweet that often but you know, you'll see when you do, it's I'm a fucking doing. buy. So, you know, get a, yeah. get ahead of it. <laughs> yeah. When I do, if it's, it's, it's a buy, but that's not financial advice. That's what I'm buying. So that's not funny. Again, not financial advice. Nothing I there said was nothing. I said, just disclaimer here. Nothing I said here was financial advice at all. Mine was buy more sandwiches. Yeah. Just spend it yes. before inflation comes. Yeah. Buy sandwich coin. Yeah. Well, actually, no, Is that not a real one. You want to make that coin with me after we make that NFT? Uh, I'm game. I probably exist, but we could do it. We could, we could find that. We can make another one. We'll, we'll rip them off. We'll, or we could do if hell we'll do a 51% attack. We'll take over their blockchain. Oh, is that? We'll oh dude, that's fucking awesome. Uh, yeah. a poison pill. What? No, a hostile takeover. Exactly. Literally. Dude, I'll get myself a briefcase, some suspenders. We'll storm into their office. It'll be fucking awesome. Well, it's a little nerdier. It's gonna, I mean, we're going to need like a lot of graphics cards to do a complete you know like we're gonna like just sit there and have like a lot like a bunch of graphics cards running well, can i can i pack my really briefcase hot. with graphic cards oh hell yeah <laughs> as long as hell i get yeah. a briefcase out of this hell yeah oh yeah you do it'll, i mean it'll probably be hot enough that you can toast the sandwich uh the bread for your Fuck sandwich yes now we're yeah. talking and then we could sell those be a whole fucking ponzi scheme of uh of bitcoin <laughs> sandwiches all right we're gonna call it there we've we've, we've brought this into nonsense territory Thank you for the uh, NFT education and uh, anything else you want to plug uh, where people can find you? Yes. Yeah, so you can follow me at Pavel Trades on Twitter. That's really wherever you can find me. But also uh, I want to shout out my uh, friend, uh, James Gentleman of Blackbird Podcast. Go give him a follow. He had me on not too long ago. It was before I really like I've I've known about NFTs for a little while. But my most recent episode, like I didn't like it didn't like click enough, like, you know, for me to like get nfts to talk about like on a podcast until 
like right after I did his most recent one. But if you want to go hear me talk more about, you know, crypto and trading and investing, go ahead and listen to him. And he's awesome. He's a great guy. So, yeah. All right. That's it. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate you coming yeah. on.